Manufacturing Descent. Since 1996, this is hell, and since 1996, we have had our four-hour show abbreviated or entirely preempted by sports programming on our home station, WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, especially during the fall and Northwestern University football. In fact, today's This Is Hell will be shortened due to football. We're only on air and over the air for one hour today. But because of subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, we have our very own studios above a pool table in a bar, and that's where we are broadcasting from right now. So if you are listening to WNUR to continue hearing today's live four-hour show, you can hear the live stream at thisishell.com. Again, the first hour of today's This Is Hell will be broadcast over the air on WNUR. And then the rest of the show, the second, third, and fourth hours, will stream live at thisishell.com. Now, we might be cut off on WNUR at 10 o'clock. It might happen at 10.15. It might happen at 10.40. So as soon as you hear sports programming, if you're listening to WNUR over the air, listening to This Is Hell on WNUR, as soon as you hear sports start up, you got to go over to thisishell.com to continue listening to the show. We'll post the entire show in its entirety online shortly after. Thanks to everyone who has made this possible, our subscribers on Patreon, and everyone who goes to thisishell.com and clicks on support. Without you, we would not be able to give you as much hell as we want each and every week. So... Thank you. This is Hell also airs on Chicago's South Side's Lumpen Radio, WLPN FM, and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, KRFP FM. Live from the United States where property has more rights than people. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's Hell, Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, what are we going to do on Saturday mornings from now on? Does, oh, my God. Do you still want to hang out from 9 to 1? No. <laughs> no, I do not. Oh, my God. I am so hoping. I am so hoping that this is the... I, I don't even want to tell you what I'm hoping, because my wishes won't come true, right? I already wrote a bit on Twitter, so sorry. <laughs> on this week's This Is Hell, we've got really, really bad news for everybody who believes, who thinks they are actually recycling their plastic. We'll find out the real reason why protests turn violent. We'll have revealed to us the actual reasons the United States has drastically changed over the last few decades. And we'll get the historical context of the UAW strike against those bastards at GM. And those bastards at UAW, for that matter. As always, contributor Jeff Dorchin will deliver a moment of truth, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And millennials may be all mature and not upset at baby boomers, blaming them for screwing up everything. 
But I'm a really, really immature person, so I like to play baby boomers. I'm just not as mature as millennials, I guess. Our guests this week are returning to This Is Hell award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who posted the Intercept story, Waste Only. How the plastics industry is fighting to keep polluting the world. Sharon has received awards from the Society for Environmental Journalists, the American Public Health Association, the Women in Politics Institute, and the News Women's Club of New York. Sharon's series, The Teflon Toxin, which exposed DuPont's multi-decade cover-up of the severe harms to their public's health, won many awards. This will be uh, Sharon's third appearance on This Is Hell. Sharon was on twice back in 2017, and you can hear all those interviews. All you have to do is just go to thisishell.com and put in Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R, and you can find all of our interviews with Sharon. Today, Sharon will tell us the ugly truth about plastic recycling, and that is, despite consumer efforts, their plastic is not being recycled but burned. Then we'll do Rotten History, and at that point, we'll probably be switching over from airing over the air to streaming live at thisishell.com or somewhere in the following interview. On the live stream, as well as on the podcast later today at thisishell.com, we'll start with the real reason why protest violence happens. We'll talk to sociologist Ann Nassauer, Nassauer, sorry. Anne Nassauer, author of Situational Breakdowns, Understanding Protest Violence and Other Surprising Outcomes, and argues that on the very rare occasions when protests do turn violent, it's not because police are dicks or protesters purposely provoke violence. Anne's research focuses on violence and deviant action, collective behavior, and the use of video data for scientific inquiry. Her work lies at the intersection of sociology social psychology and criminology with the ultimate goal of better understanding human action and interaction and is assistant professor of sociology at the John F. Kennedy Institute for North American Studies at Freie Universität Berlin. Following Anne, we'll share what you, our listeners, are telling us, after which we'll speak with political theory and constitutional law scholar Jack Jackson, author of Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics and the American Right. Jack teaches at Whitman College. He's, uh, his teaching and research is at the intersection, again, of political theory and U.S. constitutional law. Jack finds that law in the United States has changed drastically in the last few decades, and those drastic changes have had a huge impact on how U.S. courts dole out what's supposed to be justice. Jack has been the Fulbright Visiting Research Chair in Constitutional and Political Theory at McGill University, a visiting scholar at Emory Law's School's Vulnerability and Human Condition Initiative, a fellow at UC Berkeley's Townsend Center for the Humanities, and an Ella Baker Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Jack also serves on the Board of Directors of the Homeless Action Center, a nonprofit law firm in Berkeley, California. After Jack, we'll have your answers to this week's question from hell and this week's question is what are you infusing with CBD what are you infusing with CBD and the listener who has the best response this week wins a this is hell t-shirt you can see the this is hell t-shirt right now at our website uh, this is hell.com just click on support just leave your response now at facebook.com slash this is hell and see if you end up winning the prize then during the fourth and final hour of this week's hell we'll learn the historical context of the ongoing uaw strike against general motors helping us figure out what's behind the strike will be activist and retired auto worker thomas adams who wrote the monthly review article a tale of corruption by the united auto workers and the big three 
auto, American automakers. Thomas received a Ph.D. from Michigan State University in 2010. His dissertation, UAW Incorporated, The Triumph of Capital, examines the corruption in the UAW. Thomas's forth- forthcoming book is based on that dissertation and the impact institutional corruption within the UAW has on the rank and file. Jeff Dorch will wrap up this week's moment uh, with this week's show with a moment of truth. This time, Jeff wonders if it's worth having heroes. And like I said, I've got something to say about millennials who have been screwed by their horrible, horrible parents. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is probiotics. What kind of show are we doing now? I don't know. (laughs) According to an article that reads like an ad at CNET.com, scientists have long recognized the potential of probiotics, live microorganisms that benefit their host, for improving human health. Researchers believe we could use these good bacteria to do almost everything. Oh, okay. From treating eczema and UTIs to, yes, even curing a hangover. Some scientists are even transplanting human poo full of bacteria directly into the gut of sick patients and, remarkably, beating back infectious disease. The world's first genetically engineered probiotic comes in a thumb-sized glass bottle. Ooh. (laughs) Sounds uh, bespoke. A Silicon Valley facsimile of Alice in Wonderland's Drink Me Potion. Hope it also doesn't say drink me on that (laughs) one. Designed to make you feel better after a night of drunken debauchery, it's already being dubbed by some as a hangover cure, but unlike Lewis Carroll's Imagine Drink, this bottle is full of living organisms bumping up against one another. The trillions of microbes inside the vial have never existed on Earth before. (laughs) Huh? Uh, under a microscope, though, they look like tiny pink pills. Ooh, nice. That makes this week's Hangover Cure the newly created probiotic known as ZB183. <laughs> Soon to be ruling Earth. I know, exactly. That's the most frightening Hangover Cure I think we've ever offered on this show. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Oh, I forgot to turn the AC off. Damn it. Sorry. I got it. All right, thanks. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong, this is hell on our most recent live over the air show a couple weeks ago we had the pleasure of interviewing lecturer in political economy and organization at the university of leicester and co-host of hashtag acfm podcast cure milburn about his book his new book generation left in Keir's book, he describes the massive generational divide between the politics of older people and the younger generation essentially it boils down to this Older people are not interested in anything with socialism in its name because capitalism worked out and continues to work out for them just fine. Younger people, on the other hand, have been screwed by capitalism, or should I say neoliberalism, as their parents' baby boomer generation prioritized tax cuts and the privatization of everything for a quick buck over their children's future. Now, that's probably a lot more... simplistic and harsh than Cure would say it. And we've had plenty of millennials on the show telling us they don't see anything to gain and blaming their parents for the lousy lot their folks left behind for the younger generation. We've even had millennials who dismiss the blame game as a very baby boomer thing to do. And if there's one thing baby boomers like to do, it's blame everyone and anyone for all the problems they've created. Just don't blame Capitalism. They'll never do that. Boomers cashed in on the soaring stock market, precariously propped up by financialization and all those quirky investments that caused things like the tech bubble, the internet bubble, the housing bubble, all of which burst long before millennials had their chance to cash in on the con. Unbelievably, the people who are now the age of millennials' parents are openly complaining about millennials, acting as if they're entitled special treatment and privileges. So, what are the special 
privileges and treatment millennials want. Let's see. They don't want the high cost of a college education, which puts them into deep debt the moment they are handed their diploma. Millennials' education costs are more than three and a half times greater than what their parents spent on their university education. Why has the cost of an education gone up so dramatically? Could it be that state funding of higher education has declined on a per-student basis by about 25%, which means average tuition has been forced to more than triple? And why was the state funding cut? So millennials' parents could get those tax breaks while breaking down government into something so small it could be drowned in a bathtub, as President Reagan famously fantasized? The big, bad, evil, awful government must be destroyed, baby boomers screamed. Don't get me wrong, I'm against big, bad government too, but state funding to schools is not a big, bad government problem. Neither state funding of health care, another expense that has dramatically increased in cost for millennials compared to what their parents... Uh, experienced at their age. For whatever reason, the anti-big government types don't focus on budget cuts to save the military-industrial complex. Nope. Those costs keep skyrocketing with parents' patriotic approval. Millennials want the privilege of moving out of their parents' home, but far too many have to continue living with their parents because of their massive debt brought on by the cuts to public funding of education that their parents' generation supported. Millennials want the privilege of the stability of employment that their parents experienced and followed them into retirement with something baby boomers call, I guess, it, it, pensions? I'm not too sure what they are, but apparently you would put money into a system that was not then taken by investors and twisted into all sorts of derivatives that are vulnerable to the volatility of the market, and boomers could get the secure money once they actually retired. And that's on top of Social Security, which is another entitlement that millennials want, but most doubt there will be any Social Security by the time they retire. Hell, the near-term societal collapse due to global warming, many millennials don't even know if they have a future at all, let alone one that will be around when they turn 65 or 80 or whatever baby boomers decide should be the new retirement age in order to have their beloved, balanced federal budget. <sighs> That is, if they don't privatize it first. Back in the 80s, boomers were constantly worrying, what about the children, and inculcating a paranoid fantasy of stranger danger in their kids, filling them with fantastic stories filled with fear. Then after doing that psychic and emotional hit job on their children's worldview, they'd support political candidates, policies, and parties that cut spending for their children's futures, while wallowing in the temporary victories of a few more bucks at tax time. It turns out that strangers are not the real danger. The danger is already inside the house, much like the way that most sexual assaults are committed against a victim by someone they already know, not a stranger. Most of the assaults on millennials' futures were done by people in their own family, their parents and grandparents. Even those who were in unions sold them out. Hell, as we'll learn when we talk to former auto worker Thomas Adams in a bit, unions sold out future generation salaries, which is why the UAW is on strike against General Motors today. When talking to Keir about Generation Left, I remembered a story a friend of mine told me about one of Chicago's most important cultural institutions, which I will not name because I don't want my friend's career to be put in jeopardy. My friend told me that when they were brought into the organization, it was struggling with an aging supporter base, and they didn't know what to do, believing that the institution's decline was potentially inevitable. One of Chicago's most revered cultural institutions was afraid they were on a slow road to oblivion, but unfortunately they were 
getting in the fast lane of that slow road. They needed suggestions. They needed a fix and fast. My friend suggested that the institution's program was focused on, it targeted older people far too much, which the institution said it actually made sense as they are bigger supporters and we should reward them for their very long-term loyalty. Problem is, as my friend pointed out, all that stuff old people like bores the hell out of young people. Sure, they don't, they don't mind some of it. The, they appreciate older cultural contributions just like their elders do, but not all of the same stuff done in the same way all of the freaking time. But most of the higher-ups wanted to just keep doubling down on the ancient ones already invested in the organization while ignoring any attempt at bringing in new fans. My friend persisted. The leadership's minds were eventually changed. A young people's program began. And the institution is now very sustainable long into the future. The story reminds me of the short-sightedness of the Democratic Party, the ones turning their backs on millennials' calls for a more socialized government. You know, like the ones their parents and grandparents had that made college accessible and healthcare affordable and their job secure with a pension and all their entitlements and their parents enjoyed that their kids will never see. You, you want a sustainable Democratic Party? Listen to millennials. No boomers, millennials are not entitled. You are. Millennials are not spoiled. You are. And guess what? Maybe that's why suicide rates for teens and young people are at an all-time high. They see the future you left for them, and they want no part of the climate-changed world of debt and depression you did nothing to stop. Now, I am not a millennial, but if you don't mind a suggestion from someone who is older, the next time some old fart says your generation is a bunch of entitled spoiled brats and asks you why your generation is going all socialist, look them straight in the eye and say, because this, what you pricks left behind for us, is hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you infusing with CBD? What are you infusing with CBD? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. All replies read on air during the third hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can view right now at our website, thisishell.com, and click on support. Again, the question from Al is, what are you infusing with CBD? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won a This Is Hell t-shirt, which, again, you can find right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, plastic recycling is a scam, the real reasons behind protest violence, how changes in the justice system have pushed the United States towards the right, how the UAW selling out its workers has led to the UAW strike against GM. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders if it's worth having heroes. We'll have rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online, some others for supporting this is hell at this is hell.com when they click on support, as well as what's happening on upcoming shows. There's also a show of of Wesley Willis's art taking place here in Chicago. So if you have uh, never seen the work of the person who says a demon is on my butt at the end of our show every week, we'll tell you where you can. There's also going to be an anti-violence uh, rally here in Chicago. And I did some research on fun this week. And wow, does the internet have some awful as well as wonderful ideas about what is and what is not fun. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry, The Planet's on Fire. So, yes, this is hell. Like a lot of you, uh, every day I diligently put the recycling in the recycling bin in an effort, albeit small, to save our planet. The idea is that recycled plastic can be used again and again, and therefore we won't be making so many wasteful products with huge toxic footprints. Then I read our first guest's writing in a far more harsh reality set, and here to tell us the sad truth about recycling plastic award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner posted the Intercept story, Waste Only, How the Plastics Industry is Fighting to Keep Polluting the World, which was published in partnership with Type Investigations. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sharon. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you, and it's great to have you as our uh, first guest, or one of our very first guests in our brand new studio. So thank you very much for being back on with us. You can find Sharon's article at, uh, let's see, typeinvestigations.org, and you can find it also at theintercept.com. Follow Sharon on Twitter at FastLearner, that's L-E-R-N-E-R. You mentioned at the beginning of your writing, you mentioned a contest for elementary school students where they participate in a plastic bag receptacle decorating competition and how the winning school's principal told a local TV news show that it was all about helping the environment. But you report the real story behind the dragon, as with much, the, that was the way that they decorated the recycling bin. The real story behind the dragon, as with much of the escalating war over plastic wa- waste, is more complicated. The contest was sponsored by A Bag's Life, a recycling promotion and education effort of the American Progressive Bag Alliance, a lobbying group that fights restrictions on plastics. That organization is part of the Plastics Industry Association, a trade group that includes Shell Polymers, Lionel Bissell, Exxon Mobil, Chevron Phillips, Dow DuPont, and Novolex, all of which profit hugely from the continued production of plastics. And even as A Bag's Life was encouraging kids to spread their uplifting message of cleaning up plastic waste, its parents' organization, the American Progressive Bag Alliance, was backing a state bill that would strip Tennesseans of their ability to address the plastics crisis. And that's where the uh, event was taking place. How does that agenda affect, in your opinion, the message they are sending the school children who participate in their sponsored contests? Are the students being misled, being indoctrinated into believing something that, in fact, is not true? Um, Well, in short, uh, yes. I mean, what they're doing undermines this... uh, project that the kids the kids are basically spitting in the wind unfortunately we all are when the major producers of plastic are fighting efforts that would actually truly restrict uh truly limit plastic waste so you know the the bag the bill that was um up in tennessee was a bag ban and, you know, around the world and in certain states, we've, you know, passed these bans that limit the ability, of, the ability to sell these plastic ba- bags, which, um, as I know in the story, billions and billions, we don't have exact, the exact number of how many are used, but uh, huge numbers. And uh, only a tiny fraction, well under 1% of those are ever recycled. And so, you know, you can cram them into whatever, you know, receptacle, whether it looks like a dragon or not. And it's not going to address the fact that the recycling, our system of recycling plastics is broken. And in 
in part that uh, brokenness serves the manufacturers of plastics who are making increasing amounts of what they call virgin plastic or new plastic, which competes with recycled plastic, right? They can sell more if they're, you know, instead of, if people aren't using recycled plastic to, to do what virgin plastic would do. So there's sort of, there's that underlying um, uh, disincentive really for it to work. So how bad are plastic bags for the environment? And more importantly, how, uh, how much of a consumer choice can people make in just using a multi-use uh, grocery bag and problem solved, right? Well, plastic bags are only a small part of it. Bla- bags themselves um, actually snag up recycling equipment and are, can be very difficult and sort of counterproductive for uh, plastic recycling more generally. But if we look beyond bags, what we realize is that our world is awash in plastic. Um, most of it, most of it we here in the U.S. don't actually see because it gets landfilled and burnt, um, but also because it gets uh, sent off to poor countries uh, that are, you know, where mountains of this stuff are, are they're in their water, it's, it's in their air, uh, it's everywhere. And it's also, of course, in the oceans and in nature, as we all know. And I want to talk about how it's in the water and the air in just a little bit, but how little is currently recycled when it comes to plastic? How, how big do you think the disconnect is between how much we believe is recycled and yeah. how little actually is? Well, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, for me, it was shocking when I was researching this and writing this, but basically the vast majority of plastic that ever has ever been produced. And we've made, I guess, more than 8 billion metric tons of plastic since, you know, this has all begun. But the vast majority of that, 79%, has ended up in landfills or burnt or scattered around the world, i.e. not recycled. Um, so when you look in the U.S. at our recycling rate, and, you know, we all, as you mentioned in the beginning, we all want to feel like we're doing the right thing with this stuff. And this, and it's virtually impossible to avoid it, to avoid plastic in your life. Very hard, possible, but very, very, very difficult. And um, at our peak, the peak in the U.S., the plastics recycling rate in 2014 peaked at 9.5%. So that is, that means that never in our history have we managed to recycle even a tenth of the plastic that we've been dealing with. What do you think is the impact on consumers when they do want, like you were saying, they do want to do the right thing and then they find out that this is just an exercise in futility? What do you think that what is the impact on the consumer and their view of what they can do about climate change, global warming, or helping the environment in any way? Well, I mean, so let me just say the concept of recycling, the concept, if the reality is dead, the concept is not, and it shouldn't be. I mean, and of course we can recycle glass and paper and metal well, and that's all functioning. But specifically when we're talking about plastic, um, there are three kinds that actually there's a market for. And we should say why this isn't working in part is because 
uh, as I mentioned, there's the competition with virgin plastic. And basically, you know, recycling is set up uh, to function as an as an economy. And, and theoretically what happens is recyclers sell their, uh, you know, re basically melt in their plastic and sell it to folks who are going to use it. Unfortunately, what's happened is that there really isn't the market for much of the plastic. A lot of it is contaminated, and then there just aren't buyers. So if you're, you know, sending your plastic off to a recycler and they can't sell it, then what happens is they end up, you know, disposing of it other ways. So, but to back up, there are three types of plastic, and you know how on the bottom of plastic you can see those numbers? There are three types that seem to have some of a market. And you know, which is to say not all of it gets recycled, but some of it does. And those are number one and number two, and I think to a lesser degree, number five. The rest, very, very difficult to sell. Um, so what can we do? I mean, it, I have to say, since um, really being steeped in, in these numbers and, and taking in what it all means, I've really been thinking a lot just in my own life about how to get rid of this stuff. And there are things you can do is very much swimming upstream, you know, and it takes some work, but, you know, you want to bring your forks and knives and spoons that are metal with you and you want to bring uh, water bottles of your own and you, you know, I even bring takeout containers of my own when I go out to dinner now, a metal takeout container, and I put my leftovers in that if there are any. And people may look at you like you're insane, uh, some may not, and a lot of them don't look at me like I'm insane. But if they do, I mean, it's clear to me at this point that I am not insane. But this process of basically creating products that are going to be used for, you know, between three seconds and a couple minutes, uh, and then last on the planet for hundreds of years, that's insane. We are speaking with award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who posted the Intercept story, Waste Only, How the Plastics Industry is Fighting to Keep Polluting the World. And as Sharon says, she's not insane. So, Sharon, uh, you write that China's decision in 2017 to stop receiving the vast majority of plastic waste from other countries blew the flimsy lid off our dysfunctional recycling system. That year, when the Chinese government announced the National Sword Policy, as it's called, the U.S. sent 931 million kilograms of plastic waste to China and Hong Kong. The U.S. has been offloading vast bundles of scrap this way since at least 1994, when the EPA began tracking plastics exports. The practice has served to both mask the mounting crisis and absolve U.S. consumers of guilt. But in fact, much of the recycled plastic scrap that the U.S. sent to China appears to have been burned or buried instead of being refashioned into new products. So was the U.S duped by the Chinese? Were our hearts in the right place sending plastic to be recycled in China, but China burned it instead against our wishes? Is the U.S. innocent in China's burning instead of recycling plastic? Is there, Well, I mean, I think that there's, for all of us, there's this sort of, uh, you know, you just want it to be okay and you want it to be gone, right? So you kind of close your eyes and like, put it in, you know, maybe maybe this isn't recyclable, but I'm going to shove it in the recycling bin. I feel like it's a little bit like that, what happened with the U.S. and China. I can't get into the minds of those folks. I mean, there was certainly some awareness among industry and regulators at that point um, that plastics were accumulating in the ocean and, and causing all sorts of problems. Uh, and that there would, 
there is a certain amount of infrastructure necessary to recycle that didn't exist in China. So I think some some folks had to be aware of that. I think for insight into how exactly the um, Chinese were unable, have been unable to recycle, there's this amazing documentary that I recommend that everybody see, which is actually streamable for free on the internet called Plastic China, which focuses on two families. It's, it's a beautiful documentary, but basically it shows them a wash and these and these are poor folks who are who are stuck with this you know mountains and mountains of all sorts of crap from not just the US but Europe and all over the you know in Japan you know labels and and toys and and bags and and all sorts of things that are made of a mix of plastics that you know it's impossible to separate and and you see how difficult it is and how um, incredibly inefficient they do recycle some little bit. But basically, in the meantime, their water is contaminated, their air is contaminated, they're breathing, breathing in toxic fumes. And, and the sort of amazing thing, when you look at, uh, you know, that you can kind of pan out from there, uh, in, in, in the film and see it's not just his family, but it's like, all over this region of China. And of course, there are many regions in China. And of course, now we're not doing that anymore. Well, wonderful. Well, now our waste is going to um, 58 other countries that, you know, aren't equipped to deal with it, including Turkey and Senegal and Thailand and Malaysia and India. And and they're similarly ill-equipped to deal with it. So I, I recommend that film. Like, just, it, it really was... Is devastating, but really eye-opening. You write that without good alternatives, the U.S. is now burning six times the amount of plastic it's recycling, even though the incineration process releases cancer-causing pollutants into the air and creates toxic ash, which also needs to be disposed of somewhere. Without good alternatives, how dependent are we upon the plastics that are polluting our planet that we cannot recycle? Because whenever I hear anyone being critical of the plastics industry and their polluting ways. The plastic industry always shoots back with ads that say, did you know plastics are in? And then they list all the products that we depend upon, right. even some life-saving technology. Do we simply have to accept plastics pollution as a way of life? And any criticism we have of the industry is hypocritical because all of us depend upon plastics that are, as of now, irreplaceable and without an alternative? Because that's what the plastics industry is telling me in all right. these ads. Right. You're absolutely right. And I think that they say that. And and I think the first response has to be about a half of all plastics that are being made right now are single-use plastics. So like packaging for things that don't need to be packaged, you know, that, you know and things that we don't need to purchase in a single-use way. So think about that, a half. These are things, again, that like pass through your life for seconds or minutes and end up you know, polluting the planet basically forever. So let's start with that. Is that essential? No. Could we get rid of it? Yes. Hell yes. So that's number one. And number two, it's really important to try to pick apart the greenwashing strategies of the plastic uh, industry, which have been so effective over years and years, decades, uh, going back, you know, to the, to the 70s, really, and to to um, 
to call him out on it because, uh, and I think actually, I do think this is happening a few days after this piece ran. And, and my piece talked a lot um, about this group called the Plastics Industry Associ- Association, which is, um, as you mentioned, a trade group, Shell, uh, ExxonMobil, Chevron, DuPont, um, also until very recently, Coke and Pepsi, who, after this piece ran, both companies announced that they were leaving the Plastics Industry Association. And that's because I think um, pointing out the uh, underhanded tactics of the industry over the years and now, um, it's just, it's really a bad look for these companies. And I think they're they're beginning to understand that. So, And let's talk about a few of the ways. I think way- that's important. Yeah, uh, and let's talk about a few of the ways that you point out in the article how they have managed their message. Uh, and I'll read a little bit about it. It's a couple, few sentences here. You write, the plastics yeah. industry can take control, comfort in the fact that it has successfully defeated environmentalist attempts to hold it responsible for plastic with similar tactics as it's using today before. The trick has been to publicly embrace its opponents' concerns for the environment while privately fighting attempts at regulation. The double-edged strategy dates back to at least 1969 when an editorial and modern plastics magazines warned about the impending waste crisis. And when the first Earth Day was launched in 1970, in part to tackle that crisis, the industry was ready. The activists had a solution to the mounting waste crisis, bottle bills that would put the onus for cleaning up the waste on manufacturers. The big beverage and packaging companies fought the bottle bill and came up with a clever dodge that's still paying off today. Not only did they tar supporters of the bottle bills as radicals, but they also launched a massive PR campaign that seemed to incorporate some of the anger about the mounting garbage that had fueled the Earth Day protest while shifting responsibility for the waste away from the companies that created it and onto consumers. In 1971, Keep America Beautiful, an anti-litter organization formed by beverage and packaging companies, including PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Philip Morris, teamed up with the Ad Council to create the now infamous Crying Indian ad. The famous Crying Indian ad was a plastic industry commercial to shift blame from them to the consumer. To what extent have U.S. consumers internalized pollution, climate change, all our environmental blaming ourselves when the real culprit is industry because of industry propaganda? Exactly. To a huge degree, I think. And it's really, this is what you were just reading, I feel like is at the core of this strategy, is to shift responsibility to individuals and away from the corporations that uh, are causing it and have profited massively. And of course, we're talking now, you know, we're, we're talking about extremely expensive you know, aside from, and you know, planet-threatening and life-threatening problems they've created, but that are leaving us with these massive bills. I mean, there's the p- pollution and all the, you know, health issues that have come out of that. There's climate change. This plastic is a huge contributor to climate, to, to warming, right? And who is stuck with a bill for that? Who is stuck with a bill for cleaning up just the plastic pollution? It's, it's, uh, us, you know, as taxpayers, and you know, either we're stuck with the problem, or if we want to fix it, it's like, well, you know, let's let's fund some, you know, through the government, some some effort to to address it, while the companies that have 
have caused it have ended up, you know, this has been hugely profitable for all of them, right? And and it, it is exactly the same and, and hand in hand with with the climate issues, right? You know, who is paying for this and who gets to keep the profits? Yeah, and then what I was thinking when I was reading this, the way that um, the industry has put the blame on consumers, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think, do you think that that might have led to the rise in and the embrace of climate change denialism that because the industry put the onus on the consumers and made it feel like it was our fault, therefore we started denying climate change because we didn't want to blame ourselves? Do you think that might have undermined the fight for a cleaner environment? I think that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it, but it it certainly makes sense. I mean, the personal responsibility thing is, well, I mean, it, I was, it it plays out in all of us. And, of course, we do have responsibility to put our things in the right place and not to, you know, to consume more than we should and, and, and all that. But the whole, like, concept of, you know, this litter bug as, as the source of our problems, it, it goes really deep. But, you know, and, and it certainly, you, you know, you can see the scolding that takes that tone that some of these industry funded organizations take. And I'm thinking of keep America beautiful. That's all about, you know, put it in the bin. Well, you know, sure. Put it in the bin, but like, let's talk about who's funding keep America beautiful, which again, is a lot of the same players, the big plastic industry and beverage folks. And of course they want you to be thinking about you put it in the bin as opposed to how about the company's, Stop making it on, on stop, you know, packaging, making everything you buy now is essentially packaged in their products. So even though it's incredibly inexpensive to buy, you know, and, and make for them, there's still, you know, because the product, the volume of production is so high and escalating, they're you know, continuing to, you know, product, their growth is, exponential still. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's really, it's very frightening. You uh, write future Earth Days would continue because you talk about their influence with Earth Day. Uh, let's see, uh, right. you, you quote a past guest on our show, a historian, uh, Finnis Dunaway, who describes the Keep America Beautiful PR campaign uh, in his book, Seeing Green, the Use and Abuse of Environmental Images. And he also talks about the way in which, uh, you know, uh, Earth Day was kind of co-opted. You write future Earth Days would continue to emphasize consumers' personal responsibility for recycling, including the national commemoration of the 10th Earth Day in 1980, which was organized by Michael McCabe, a former legislative assistant who would go on to serve as Joe Biden's communications director and special projects director, before spearheading DuPont's defense of a dangerous chemical used in many plastics, PFOA, which was the focus of uh, the subject of your National Magazine award-winning series. How much have polluting industries co-opted Earth Day? Oh, to a large degree. And and it was sort of mind-blowing to me. Uh, I was looking at uh, one particular Earth Day celebration where the biggest sponsor was Dow Chemical, the world's biggest producer of plastic. So, <laughs> you know, and, and it was a lovely event, right? But this is what greenwashing is. You know, you have 
a beautiful fair and, and folks with, you know, talking to local farmers and, you know, talking about bees and micro chickens and stuff, and it's lovely and they're doing yoga. And at the same time, this is an opportunity for Dow and their program, uh, their plastics program, which we can talk about, to uh, to get to, to shine and to get their name out there as like a, a you know a caring uh, environmentally concerned company. Which, if you <laughs> look at their impact on the world, I have to say they're not. So and, and that, I started thinking about shame because you write only 5% of polypropylene was recycled in 2015, and that was before China decided to stop taking our waste. Since then, the percentage recycled is likely much lower still, meaning that the vast majority of the 1 billion new recyclable Starbucks lids will end up where the old ones did in landfills, trash heaps, incinerators, and the oceans. I often uh, hear... I, I don't want to make blanket statements, but I often hear people shaming consumers for what they are doing when it comes to their interaction with the environment. Shaming consumers, I hear that a lot from environmentalists, and I'm just concerned that that is undermining their message because they're putting blame on consumers instead of corporations. So can consumers shame companies like Starbucks into changing their ways or thinking about recycling in a more comprehensive way? Has there been success in shaming companies into having a better, a less of a, a carbon footprint? Well, to the degree that anyone is actually changing their packaging, I feel like it is, there is a role of shame for sure. So far as Starbucks seems to be immune to the shame, um, you know, I think that but I really think it's important to call out um, this idea that, you know, we're going to change the shape of our plastic as a way of <laughs> solving the plastic solution. We're going to, you know, produce more plastic in a different shape is, you know, it's, it's I think, very clearly BS. And I think that um, that that, you know, just by, you know, putting actual the color green on your statement or some, you know, arrows and or saying, you know, earth friendly, it 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 won't fly. And I think most people eventually will see that if they, you know, if they take and, and take a minute and look. And I, I think that, um, you know, Starbucks isn't the only one to take this ploy, but they were pretty um, uh, bold about it. You also write that in May, the most recent month for which data is available, the U.S. sent 64.9 million kilograms of plastic scrap to 58 countries, Thailand, India, and Indonesia, where more than 80% of waste is mismanaged, according to data published in Science magazine, are among the countries that now find themselves besieged with U.S. plastic that's being illegally dumped and burned. Is the U.S. knowingly involved in a crime in exporting waste to other countries where we know it will be illegally burned? And whose law are we breaking? Who should enforce it? Well, yes, we are complicit in that for sure. Um, and, you know, interestingly, whose laws are we breaking? Um, I don't I don't have the legal expertise to answer that, but I can tell you that the Basel Convention, which is uh, an international treaty focusing on waste, hazardous waste, recently has tightened up the restrictions on 
what can be exported to um, their member countries, which I think will ultimately, even though the U.S. isn't a member, which we shouldn't be so surprised about that, though it is disappointing, um, I think it's going to change how, hopefully, um, how much we can export to whom and, and if, you know, in what way. So I should also say that while this is underway, our own government, not only did we not sign on to this treaty, Andrew Wheeler, the EPA chief, has objected to it and basically uh, been acted, acting to obstruct progress in this way. So, uh, But I do think there's a little bit of hope on that front. So um, what is the health effect of eating and breathing plastic? Because you write the terrifying news about plastic seems to be as inescapable as the plastic itself, tiny bits of which are now almost everywhere. One study found these microplastics in the Pyrenees Mountains air 100 miles from the nearest city. Another found that microplastics are being turned into sewage sludge and spread on fields that grow food. What is the health effect on us of eating and breathing plastic? Well, I think to a large degree, we don't know the answer to that yet. I, you know, I'm no doctor, but I can tell you that it doesn't seem like a good idea to um, have plastic inside me. Um, But I think you know, I think we're beginning to, people are beginning to look into it, but I don't think we have a really good understanding. We do have um, some grasp on the health effects of some of the additives to plastic, but only some. So we know that there are thousands of chemicals that are added to plastics, things um, like flame retardants and plasticizers, phthalates, that uh, have devastating um, effects on the endocrine system, on development, on reproduction. Some are associated with cancers. And so we can track those much better, I think, because plastic involves so many different products and, you know, and compounds. As I was mentioning, you know, there's one through seven and they're all kind of made of different things. Um, I think that we're... You know, the big picture of the health impacts we're, we're beginning to understand. Why don't we understand those yet? Uh, is the plastics industry creating obstacles for any kind of oversight when it comes to uh, the health and safety of consumers? Because it would seem to me that you know, the Federal Trade Commission or the FDA or some government agency would make certain that any kind of utensil that we're going to be putting in our mouth doesn't have anything in it that would be toxic in any way. So, so where, so, yeah. so, to what extent has the plastics industry created obstacles to study their plastics? Well, I mean, so this is onto another broken system, which is the broken system of chemical reg- regulation. And I think there's very little understanding that we basically do a terrible job of making sure, that, as you said, that that toxic uh, chemicals don't enter our bodies and enter our, enter our, you know, air and water. Um, and it's really, we've only ever regulated a small handful of chemicals. Chemicals are added onto the inventory entered into commerce every day without uh, any rigorous uh, review. I just wrote a piece um, this past week, which so far has flown under the radi- radar, which I think is really important about PFAS chemicals, which, as you mentioned earlier, are, um, you mentioned PFOA, which is an important plastic additive. 
I did a piece this week, which you can find on The Intercept, um, that shows 40 different PFAS compounds. These are replacements for things like PFOA, things that PFOA was taken off the market. These ones are the replacements. I found the reports that manufacturers sent to the EPA showing that 40 of these compounds had presented serious risk to health and the environment, mostly health, things like cancer, things like um, developmental toxicity, neurotoxicity, and all of these were allowed to enter onto, in, into commerce and are now in use. So it, it's a much, much bigger problem you talk about. The other thing that you mentioned is how in the U.S. the Trump administration has worked against international efforts to crack down on plastic waste, so cities and towns are leading the way. What happens if all the other countries go anti-disposable plastic but the U.S. doesn't? Because there was a report this week that the Trump campaign has sold over $850,000 in plastic straws that say make America great again. So how much impact can the U.S. have on global plastic consumption? Yeah, so, I mean, two things. One, about the straws. I just want to say, you know, it's, it's the perfect, like, spitball-throwing snarky kid in the back of the classroom responds, ooh, you know, straws, ooh, you know, let's, Let's sell a Trump plastic straw, and clearly there are people who are going to buy them. But I don't think that this is really a winner for them, right? And he's he's loves that term loser. I think that pretty much, you know, people who aren't misanthropic um, in the particular way that he and Andrew Wheeler are uh, in terms of, you know, delighting in destroying uh, people's health and the environment – People see that, you know, 800 and uh, I'm sorry, um, the number, I think it's actually 45 million people have watched the um, turtle with the, the straw, uh, sea turtle with the straw in his nose. People don't want to see animals die and bleed and suffer because, you know, for the delight of drinking soda through a straw. It's not a winner for them. So there's that. And in terms of the the rest of the world, I mean, we are having a little bit of pushback here, and you can see that consumers are rising up and saying we're not we're, we don't feel okay about this. It's beginning to happen here. But one of the things I reported on in the in the plastic story was a plastics industry conference where where they are anticipating already. Okay, we're going to have some diminishment of plastic. Uh, market here in the U.S., so where else are we going to sell it? And it wasn't a question of, are we going to be able to sell our plastic? The question was, where? And, you know, and mostly the answer I heard was in Asian countries other than China. But, you know, the world is big, and it takes a lot to fight these huge companies, right? We're struggling um, for many reasons, but many other countries are going to have a harder time still. So, you know, there's, it's a big world. And unfortunately, they're putting plastic everywhere in it. 
And you mentioned one of the ways in which they're trying to figure out a better use for uh, the uh, for uh, plastics. And you write how Renewology and New Hope are two firms offering what the plastics industry is putting forward as the newest solution to plastic waste, so-called chemical recycling. According to the American Chemistry Council, expanding plastics recovery into this realm would result in billions of dollars of economic output. Yet even the technology's biggest proponents acknowledge that no one yet knows how to efficiently and economically convert plastic into its component parts and then back into fuel. If all the non-recycled plastics in the U.S. were converted to oil, quote, we could create enough fuel to power 9 million cars each year, the Chevron Phillips sustainability director Rick Wagner argued in a recent article in Plastics Recycling Update magazine. The transformation would allow also allow Chevron, the second largest plastic manufacturer in the world to shrug off its responsibility for the massive quantities of pollution now choking the globe. But even Wagner admits that we're still far from knowing how to chemically recycle. Is chemical recycling then nothing more than an industry distraction of fiction to keep them from being held responsible for their plastics impact on our environment and health? Or is it a real possibility for a new alternative fuel that doesn't have the environmental impact of fossil fuels? Well, so it's important to know the backstory here. The history is this idea has been kicking around for decades. So maybe we can just, you know, burn it, you know, melt it, get it down to its component parts and reuse them. And as much as that idea has been out there, nobody has succeeded to, in doing this in any sort of a way that's economically viable. So, you know, people try to get these projects off the ground and what they require and what is um, happening in several states around the country is, you know, public funding. So, so uh, you know, that is a direction I feel that these are, are moving to because, because it is not uh, efficient. It, it's not like from plastic you can produce fuel yet that will make it uh, eco- economically worthwhile, right? And so while this is not yet a functional thing and may never be, right, they've been working on it for decades, it is um, another form, another thing that they can hide behind. Well, it's okay to produce more plastic, right, if we're going to just eventually uh, turn it back into fuel. Well, you have to be able to look at, you know, what amount of plastic turns into what amount of fuel. Well, I asked everybody uh, who I could find who had one of these plants. Nobody would tell me because I think because the numbers are not yet near anything you would uh, want them to be. And so you have, but you have this sort of, you know, wishful, oh, this is, this is, uh, this is our answer. Meanwhile, so what you have is these plants that are already coming into existence that don't seem to be able to do what they're promised to do yet. And uh, in several of these places where you have state bills that are passed with uh, the help of the chemical industry and the plastics industry, and a lot of these bills actually do away with the strict restrictions on uh, air pollution that they would be, these plants would be subject to. So what you have is you're taking um, plastic, which is made, from fossil fuels, we should remember from oil and natural gas, right? Sometimes coal. And then you're doing whatever you do with it, maybe it's the single use plastic or whatever. And then you're trucking it to one of these plants and then you're using 
fossil fuels to heat it to turn it into another fossil fuel. So given what we know about our warming planet and climate change and already how much of a contributor plastic production is to that, the idea that we're going to then, you know, go through this incredibly uh, energy uh, expensive process seems ridiculous. One last question for you, Sharon. We have been speaking with award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner. This is her third appearance here on This Is Hell. If you go to thisishell.com and you put L-E-R-N-E-R in the search engine, you will be able to hear all of her interviews on our show. Find all of Sharon's writing at theintercept.com, especially the most recent writing that she's been doing on plastics that she was discussing a little bit earlier. We've been talking to her about her article, Waste Only, How the Plastics Industry is Fighting to Keep Polluting the World, which was published in partnership with Type Invest. Investigations, uh, and you can follow Sharon on Twitter at Fast Learner. Again, that's L E R N E R. As we do for all of our guests, Sharon, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that when Chicago was weighing a plastic bag tax in 2016. An organization called the ACC, the American Chemistry Council, rolled out RAP, W-R-A-P, RAP Recycling Action Program uh, in Chicago, announcing that locals can recycle plastic bags at nearly 400 local groceries and retail stores. This year in Florida, the ACC made another local RAP push just as a uh, state-level bill to ban plastic straws was introduced. And you point out that the only real question about the proliferation of a product we know to be heating the planet, amassing all around us and within us and poisoning waste and air around the world is what new techniques its producers will adopt to make it seem fine. So here in Chicago, we fell for it. It seems like we keep falling for it over and over again, dating back to the late, late 60s. Why do we keep falling for the chemistry, the chemical industry's propaganda. Because they're good. They have a lot of money. They have some very, you know, slick experts, and they've been working on this hard for decades. So I don't think it helps to blame ourselves. It's just uh, it's time to wake up, right, to say, to say, you know, so when you talk about the RAP program, you know, they basically, it's this, it's this as you mentioned, part of the American Chemistry Council, and they, they kind of trot out this idea that, hey, you don't need a bag ban because, look, you can just recycle your bags. Well, we have data that show that from their uh, bag recycling and film recycling program, hundreds of millions of pounds that they collected through their, you know, you bring it to them and it's supposed to be recycled. It actually was landfilled and burned. These are bags and films. So I think it's time for us to go, okay, not true. You know, enough with your, with your, um, you know, we don't need to do this. We actually do need to do this. We need, we need to ignore you, (laughs) wrap an American chemistry council and, and deal with it. Sharon, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. And again, everybody should be checking out Sharon's writing at The Intercept. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Thank- 
bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996 this is hell and at any moment if we haven't already we will be falling off the air on WNUR but you can continue listening to the entire four hour live this is hell today streaming live all you have to do is just go to this is hell.com this is hell.com so if you are listening to uh, the radio which is that thing that I think you keep next to your record player according to Joe Biden uh, if you are listening to your radio right now you are going to be have to you have to switch over to the computer which is uh, kind of like a record player except it doesn't have records it's very rare for political protests to become violent despite how many times the news media shows images of protest violence when protests do become violent either the predispositions of abusive police or unruly protesters are blamed but what if neither is the true culprit We'll learn the real reasons why protests do turn violent when we talk to sociologist Anne Nassauer, author of Situational Breakdowns, Understanding Protest Violence and Other Surprising Outcomes. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1921... 98 years ago, one of the largest artificial non-nuclear explosions in history occurred at the BASF plant in Opau, Germany, where a reservoir containing almost 5,000 tons of ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate fertilizer mysteriously detonated. The Titanic blast destroyed some 80% of buildings in Opau, a town on the Rhine River, and caused damage for up to 20 miles in every direction, derailing trains, collapsing roofs, and blowing out windows. And being on the Rhine probably didn't make matters, <laughs> probably made matters far worse environmentally, you'd figure. The sound of the explosion could be heard some 200 miles away in Munich, as well as in northeastern France, being 1921 and less than three years after the end of World War I. My guess is everyone who heard that blast from Munich to France were on edge. The explosion killed five to 600 people and injured another 2,000. Since all the workers inside the plant died instantly, the precise cause of the accident remains unknown. Uh, I'm going with explosion. But workers handling the substance, substance in the reservoir, which tended to clump together with the consistency of hard plaster, sometimes used small amounts of dynamite to loosen it so that it could then be handled with picks and shovels. And as a public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell, there is no such thing as a small amount of dynamite. So when a friend says, say, suggests uh, you fixing that clog in your drain with a small amount of dynamite, suggests that your friend never gives you any suggestion again. This method had been employed, uh, of employing dynamite, had been used for years without any problems, but its safety depended on the two substances, ammonium sulfate and ammonium nitrate, being mixed together in just the right proportions. Yes, you never have any problems using dynamite until you do. And all you have to do is make one mistake. Again, public service announcement, friends here at This Is Hell, no such thing as a small amount of dynamite. And now you know. In Rotten History, 1976, 43 years ago, in Washington, D.C., a car bomb explosion killed Orlando Letelier, a former close associate of Chilean President Salvador Allende, who had served in, uh, Salvador, uh, in Allende's cabinet. Let's see, close associate of Allende killed in D.C. I'm going to jump to the conclusion the U.S. assassinated him and likely the CIA, Hammer and Hank Kissinger, 
Nixon, they were all behind it. After Allende, a democratically elected Marxist, was deposed and killed in the U.S.-backed coup led by General Augusto Pinochet, Letelier had been arrested and held in various Chilean prisons where he was imprisoned and tortured for more than a year because representing what the people want is an offense the U.S. and Kissinger would not tolerate. For the U.S., democracy is great until someone democratically elects someone the U.S. does not approve. Letelier had been abruptly released from Chilean prison and kicked out of the country with a warning not to engage in activities against Pinochet's right-wing military dictatorship. Letelier had moved to the United States where he began work at a Washington think tank and quickly became a prominent figure of the Chilean opposition in exile denouncing Pinochet at every opportunity and lobbying other governments against financial dealings with the extremist free market regime. I'm starting to think Chileans killed Letelier. With U.S. assistance, of course, I'd assume, on the morning of his death, Letelier was driving to his office in Washington. A young married couple who worked for him were also in the car. The sudden explosion lifted the car off the ground and killed Letelier, along with Ronnie Moffat, who was riding in the front seat. Ronnie's husband, Michael, in the back seat, survived. Investigators found that the bomb attached to the car's undercarriage had been put there by agents of the Pinochet regime, including several anti-Castro Cuban exiles, and those anti-Castro Cuban exiles are such righteous pricks. Some conspirators were later found guilty and served sentences from five to eight years, which is surprising because I thought, just like the assassination of Allende, justice would never be served. A few others avoided prison by yielding information and making plea deals. It eventually came to light that Letelier had been targeted by Pinochet's people as part of the U.S.-backed Operation Condor, an international terrorism campaign assisted by the CIA. I knew it, of course. The CIA was behind it. I know everybody is into abolishing ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and I am too. But the acronym I want to see gone is the president's private army, the CIA. That group of killers and overthrowers of democracy has got to go. Now, that's a question I want to see posed during the next debate among potential Democratic Party nominees for president. Because whoever says they'd abolish the CIA would get my vote and probably a bomb on their car. And that's rotten history. And this is hell. This week's question from Al is, what are you infusing with CBD? What are you infusing with CBD? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week, this week's winner gets a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can view right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Again, the question from Hell is, what are you infusing with CBD? Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the real reasons behind protest violence, how changes in the justice system have pushed the United States toward the far right. The UAW selling out of its workers has led to the UAW strike against GM. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders if it's worth having heroes. We'll also have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you about our Patreon podcast. We have the question from hell. Uh, we have a whole bunch of people to thank for sharing and supporting This Is Hell. And uh, during the next break, I'll tell you where, when and where you can see the beautiful art of the late, great Wesley Willis, who you all know from the closing we play at the end of every episode of This Is Hell. A little later, I'll tell you about an anti-violence vigil happening here in Chicago and what happened to me this week when I went online searching for fun. And man, oh man, did I find fun. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell.
The common perception is protests often turn violent, and it's caused by either cops who are there with the goal of being abusive or protesters who are protesting but are really there to pick a fight with police. But now, due to new groundbreaking work, we have a much better sense of why protest violence happens. Here to explain, sociologist Ann Nassauer is author of Situational Breakdowns, Understanding Protest Violence, and Other Surprising Outcomes. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ann. Thanks for having me. Ann is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the John F. Kennedy Institute for North American Studies at, and I'm going to be pronouncing this horribly now, (laughs) Freie Universität Berlin. You start by asking, how do peaceful protests end in violent clashes? When it comes to your that question, you know, I'm biased, as is everyone when they watch news coverage. But in my view, establishment media more often blames protesters out of control than ever laying any responsibility at the feet of the police. While the 1968 Democratic Party convention violence here in Chicago is now understood as a police riot, although the vast majority of Chicagoans supported the police violence when it happened and in the days, weeks, months and years after the riot, that's kind of the rare exception that police are found to be responsible for the violence, not protesters. And that took years, if not decades, to be recognized as a police riot. So aren't the vast majorities of protests the protesters' fault and that the police are called in to restore order to a crowd of people who are committing a crime, whether that's protesting without a permit or jaywalking or being in a park after it closes? Isn't the vast majority of protest violent protesters' fault for committing a crime, even if that crime is a misdemeanor? Well, um, I wouldn't say it is the protesters' fault. And what the study suggests is that we can't say it is the protesters' or police fault, which is also not what the study was after. But to understand why and how does violence happen and how far does it matter that, for instance, protesters might have violent motivations going in, that police might have violent motivations going in, and how far do the strategies and the motivations that we have beforehand matter for the outbreak of violence. And this was what violence research and research on on protests had focused on for a very long time, explaining violence breaking out due to these types of background factors, if you will, the the motivations that you have previously, the strategies. Um, Now that we have more and more video data, especially, people are filming everything with their mobile phones. We have CCTV data, we have police body camera footage. Um, Now that we have more and more videos of actual situations in which violence happens, we see that very often the motivations and strategies that you go into a situation with don't matter as much for the outcome. This means the, the um, motivations of protesters potentially being violent, the strategies of police, they play out in the situation and how the situation unfolds seems to be really key for the outcome of violence as well as um, other um, types of um, surprising events. So what I did is I looked at how um, does a protest happen from the beginning of the protest until violence actually breaks out. Um, And I was very surprised to see that regardless of um, how the protest group was assembled, if there were protesters that were allegedly motivated towards violence, often the the so-called black bloc um, attending, or whether it was um, sort of a protest for peace, um, and um, also regardless of the police strategies going in. 
protests sometimes happened very, very rarely, um, and usually it did not. And what we find in those protests where violence uh, broke out is that we have very clear situational patterns of what happens from the start of the protest um, until violence actually broke out and how police and protesters interacted in the situation itself. That was making that made, led me to think that because this is groundbreaking work. Nobody has ever done this before. What to you explains why this it's not, I know that the technology is there and that helps. But what explains why this wasn't studied more in depth prior to the technology being? Did we just have to wait for this technology technology to exist for us to understand protest or or was there some sort of unwillingness to understand the motivations of protest violence? I think that for a very long time, the media, um, mainstream media, focuses generally on protests that turn violent because often they have to sell breaking news, and breaking news are something that is usually consequential or extraordinary. So um, a focus would generally be on does violence happen and did violence happen and what did it look like, um, and focusing really on the violent events themselves. Um, but we see that, um, and, and we've known that before, that. 95 to 98% of protests actually don't turn violent. So violence is really the, the exception, although from watching the news, we would think otherwise. And for a very long time, research had, has set the same focus, basically studying violence up close, studying violent protests. And when you go to ask protesters that uh, were at a violent protest or looked at um, police there, Often what they would say is they would rationalize why violence happened, and then we would assume, well, they were motivated to do a certain thing, and this is why this happened. But um, starting around 10 years ago um, with uh, sociologist Randall Collins, uh, among other sociologists, the focus was to not only look at the cases that the protests, for instance, where violence happened, but also look at incidences where violence does not happen, so that the great majority of events. and. Um, when we look at where violence does not happen, we often find, well, people have very similar motivations. People had very similar strategies going into the situation, but things just turned out to be very different. And this is how a shift happened. Um, I, I would say in sociology starting in the 1980s with Jack Katz's work and then um, going on in, to, to Randall Collins' work, um, specifically his, uh, a book in 2008 that he published on violence, uh, where he started to really look at violent events up close, but also see, do we find maybe similar patterns in nonviolent events. Um, and I think this shift in perspective, um, if we compare nonviolent and violent events and, and we see similar strategies and similar motivations, we can conclude that they don't seem to be, at least they don't seem to be key for uh, violence breaking out. And then now we have this shift um, in technology where basically everyone around the world can, just by going on, on YouTube, um, look at thousands, millions of videos of violent events, what actually happened prior to violence, and compare that to a similar event where violence did not break out. And these new technological uh, innovations and sort of the, this amount of, of video data of real-life events um, also really changes the field and really changes what we can do now, because we never in the history of humanity did we have so much data on real-life social events where we could actually watch what happened during that moment, um, second by second, replay that, watch it in slow motion, etc. Do expectations of violence undermine protest participation? Did you find any evidence of that? Um, this was not 
a key focus, but I found that a lot of protesters were quite afraid going into some of the protests when they expected violence to happen. And other researchers uh, suggest that if you expect violence, this might lead people to stay away. Uh, and this is something that I found quite consistently when looking at uh, protests. Initially, I would rely uh, a lot on media descriptions, mainstream media descriptions also of the protests. And I try to compare that to basically everything I found on, on visual data of the event, people filming everything that happened, compare that to protesters' accounts of what happened, compare that to um, court documents, to police radio traffic transmissions. And um, what I found is that uh, oftentimes the media um, description really revolved around violence because this is sort of an exciting topic or something that is that is easier to sell. Um, whereas often in these instances, violence was very brief or didn't happen at all. Um, but the expectation of violence was very often there in protests that usually stay peaceful. And this is something that can turn protesters away or can make protesters more hesitant of actually going to a protest. Um, and it also often implies the suspicion of, well, maybe these protesters are generally violent and do I want to be part of this group? So what also really matters for people to participate in a protest is do they want to see themselves or are they already seeing themselves as part of this protest group? Do they um, recognize the emotions that, that uh, protesters have about certain things and the expression of emotions? And here, if the expectation is this group will be violent, you might be less likely to say, oh, this is, you know, I want to be part of this group. Um, and you might uh, be fearful of police reactions. And this might lead you to stay away from protests. Although, as I said, the great majority of, of protests is very peaceful. And um, also when violence breaks out, um, it is usually in, in most cases, I mean, there are cases where where, they, uh, where you have excessive violence, but in the majority of cases, even when violence breaks out, these instances are quite brief. We are speaking with sociologist Anne Nassauer. She is author of Situational Breakdowns, Understanding Protest Violence and Other Surprising Outcomes. Uh, what impact do you think understanding the real factors behind protest violence, what uh, impact do you think that would have on protester participation? What impact do you think if protesters, uh, even people who are regularly protest or are very politically active, uh, they read your book, what impact do you think that would have on their uh, understanding of not only protest violence, but their willingness to participate in protests? I think one of the takeaway messages is that violence is rare and that you can do a lot about avoiding violence. Um, this speaks both to the police as well as to protesters. So there is a lot you can do in the situation that actually um, I think is, is a quite positive message of the book that if you would assume that motivations and strategies are key, um, there's it's harder to change these than changing the interactions um, with, uh, with police or with other protesters throughout the protest. So there's a lot I think that protest organizers and protesters themselves can do. And there is um, a lot that you can take away for um, just feeling safer, I guess, at a protest, but also feeling safer in general. So in the book, I look at a variety of surprising uh, outcomes and I look at, um, at, at uprisings, violence happening after uprisings. I look at um, robberies, um, how robberies evolve or how robberies fail. And looking at how the situation really happens, we 
see that violence overall is rare and it does not come easy to people, even if they are motivated towards violence. So I think this is a positive takeaway um, to say, well, we seem to have a very strong interest in solidary, peaceful interactions and violence tends to not come easy to us. And there is a lot that we can do in the situation. And sometimes it's quite small things that are quite manageable in order to avoid it. Um, at the same time, I think that um, knowing what can be done during the event in order to avoid violence um, also allows holding, for instance, police accountable. Uh, for a very long time, the assumption was, well, there are certain police strategies and then violence happens. What we see now is, regardless of the strategy, if, it, if an event and the interactions would turn out a certain way, then violence would happen. And now if we know for instance, clear and extensive communication on side of the police is important. Um, respect for territorial boundaries during protest is uh, is important. Then we can also hold police um, accountable for implying these. And there are some police forces that are already um, implying exactly these measures in order to um, avoid violence. And um, if uh, sort of the police department is less interested in that, we can have um, a discussion about that. I found that fascinating that you are studying both protests and armed robberies because <laughs> one is a, such a collective action and the other one seems to be a, at least an individual action. What can you learn about protest violence from studying armed robberies and vice versa? What can you learn about armed robberies by studying protest violence? Exactly. Um, so it seems quite counterintuitive at the beginning. Um, and what the book is essentially about is looking at how and why do surprising outcomes happen, surprising social outcomes. And the key argument is they happen when routines break down in the situation, so during the event. So we have these types of routines going through everyday life. We're, we rely on routines because they make life easier and they often tend to provide a sense of order. So we have routines of greeting other people. We have routines of getting to work, of organizing things that we do on the job or during family dinners. And the book argues that when these routines break down, um, surprising outcomes emerge. So we've all probably been in situations where um, routines fail and people behave contrary to everyone's expectations, sometimes including their own. And one example of this is um, protest violence, which is rarely happening and um, you have around 98% of protests being peaceful and then you have this flare-ups of violence where people clash with the police and stones fly and tear gas is used and um, the argument is that these surprising outcomes, um, not only protest violence but also robberies uh, that, that are failing, happen because of situational breakdowns of moments of chaos and confusion where people are overwhelmed because these routines that they usually rely on have collapsed. And um, I started out by looking at, at protest events, and then I wanted to see in how far do we find similar patterns that the situation matters for a surprising outcome in very different events. So the idea was to look at from this collective event where you have two large groups of people, uh, you have the protesters and the police, but often even these two groups don't initially identify themselves as one group. So often coming to a protest, protesters would think, well, they are part of, um, they are for environmentalist claims, they are for feminist claims, they have different claims. And um, often through confrontation, um, when confrontation happens, protesters tend to identify themselves more and more as one group of protesters. And then you have the police, which also often come to uh, an event and 
units from different police departments tend to see themselves as we are this department, we are that department. And then when confrontation arises, they tend to see themselves more as we are the police versus the protesters. But still, you have so many people that are involved in these types of events. And, and you have some leeway in how you can interact with the other group. Um, and then you have media, you have bystanders, etc. So the question was, if we take um, another event, another surprising outcome where we only have two people usually interacting, we have a robber and a, uh, and a victim, um, and we have very clear routines. There is not a lot of leeway because the perpetrator comes in, the robber comes in with a gun in their hand, you know what is expected of you. You don't have to be uh, ever in a robbery to know, okay, this is a robbery situation and you know there is uh, a routine happening, a trade-off of you will give up the money and therefore you will not be killed. And the question was, uh, do we find um, similar patterns in how the situation breaks down or not. And if we look at these very different types of events where um, the surprising outcome is not violence, but the surprising outcome is if the robber is armed and you know, this is a very clear routine that is supposed to happen. How come that some robberies fail? And so again, I looked at video footage of robberies that were successful in meaning that the robber got the money as uh, he or she intended um, versus robberies that failed where the robber did not manage to um, get the money from the clerk. And you have a surprising outcome in the sense of um, this not happening um, as routine was expected. And there is a lot of parallels that you see in the way of the situational unfolding of the situation, people reinterpreting the situation that they are in, and this making a very big difference for how the event happens and um, how surprising outcomes emerge. And this is what I look at um, in detail in the book and, and, and various examples of robberies happening and, and protests happening. And you write that violence during marches completely break the routine we know and expect of protests. Which made me wonder, you know, what is the routine protesters expect when they attend a protest? And more importantly, are protesters and police then surprised, even shocked when violence does break out? Because I'm wondering how that unexpected nature of the violence has any impact on that violence. Mm-hmm. Well, the routines that are often expected are the, the general routines that people experience when going to protest regularly is that you meet up with the people you know, you wait for the protest to start, you might hear some announcements, you would march for a certain um, period of time, and then you would generally either hear speeches again or you would disperse. Um, and what is interesting is that sometimes people expect violence to happen in a protest. Um, and then sometimes it, it does or it doesn't, and sometimes they don't expect violence to happen, and then it does or it doesn't. So it seems that the expectations going into a situation don't matter um, as much for violence to actually break out. Um, so I had a number of protests. Um, one was um, uh, a protest against the uh, NATO meeting um, uh, in Kiel in 2009, where everyone expected violence to happen. Uh, police expected violence, protesters expected violence. But then the interaction throughout the protest event suggested to everyone, well, maybe there you know, wasn't anything to be, to be worried about and everything um, worked out very peacefully and 
protesters just disperse at the end. Um, what is crucial, what seems to be crucial in these protests is when things go a different way, when things happen that you did not expect. Um, and one of these is, for instance, on the side of the police, um, police mismanagement. So you sometimes have um, aspects as small as walkie-talkie batteries going dead. And if a unit is in a big protest um, operation and they are in the middle of the protest somewhere, um, or if, of a big area where protests are happening, and um, the last thing they uh, they were informed about is that there are protesters assembling at this and that square, and it seems that they are picking up stones, and then all of a sudden their walkie-talkie batteries go dead. This is something um, cut off, being cut off from communication um, as a part of, uh, of police management that can strongly disrupt the expectations of how this is supposed to happen. Um, because officers would, would feel, usually in these instances, um, at least tense, sometimes extremely afraid. Um, and then if we have other um, aspects that happen during the situation that um, either group would not expect, for instance, crossing of territorial boundaries. So protesters would leave the protest route and run towards a parliament building, or um, police would go into the protest crowd. Um, this, these are things that are unexpected and that often lead to a very specific interpretation, either on side of protesters or police, which is the other group seems to be threatening us or seems to be up to something. Um, and you see that if you look at video footage um, of these events, you often see that initially for several of the protests, people were very relaxed at the beginning. They were mostly focused on other protesters. The police was mostly, you know, bored or just looking at, at the protests, but mostly um, just standing there and pretty relaxed. And then when these types of interactions happen that were not expected, um, but that in, in, um, in combining with each other can lead to a very specific interpretation, which is the other might be um, attacking us. Then you have a very strong shift in emotions. You see that people get closer together. You see that people get very tense. And um, if you look at radio traffic transmissions, you see that among police, a rumor spread about what protesters might be up to. If you look at um, uh, protesters' description, you see that they were talking among themselves, sort of what, what is happening next. And so um, the expectations um, of violence prior to going into a protest, I think they can be shifted very quickly. If people see the other side and they realize, oh, actually, you know, I don't know why we would expect uh, that this, that, that clashes what happened here. But what seems to be really important is the expectations of how you interact throughout the protest. And if things combine, such as we have police mismanagement, you have territorial boundaries that are crossed, you don't have communication between the two sides on top of that, um, then you have a, um, expected routines not working out anymore. People think the, the routine I usually can rely on is not working here. And you see them becoming sometimes very afraid of the other side. Um, and this is when you see tension increasing, tension and fear increasing. And this is uh, when violence uh, usually breaks out. I've thought of two follow-up questions that let me get the first one real quick um, expectations of violence you talk about uh, protest where there were expectations of violence you talk about another that uh, 
did not turn violent. You talk about another protest that had expectations of nonviolence that actually became violent. So our expectations of violence, shouldn't that be the default of both the police and the protesters in order to maybe best fight against the possibility of violence? I wouldn't say so because I think the what you often see in, uh, in protests is that initially protesters, as I mentioned before, don't see themselves as much as one protest group against the police. It depends on the protest you look at, obviously, but often groups are rather fragmented. The same for, for police. Um, and what you would do if you already expect violence is you would go in with sort of this um, background fear that would um, lead some people um, to stay away from a protest. Um, I think in interactions you can easily counteract that, but I don't think there is a value in sort of fearing the other from, from the outset. Um, I think that um, sort of these self-fulfilling prophecies that we often assume are happening, I did not find that in any of my protests. You have, for instance, the Seattle protests in 1999, um, where there was no particular expectation of violence, um, and then very severe clashes erupt. And if you look at police uh, radio traffic transcripts, you see that officers uh, sometimes were in fear for their lives, where there was no reason to be, in, and now in hindsight, there wasn't a reason to, to be in fear for your life in that situation. But um, giving the, the mismanagement that happened, um, the territorial boundary crossing, so people were blocking, um, blocking the streets everywhere, um, given the, the property damage and their assumptions of what property damage means, um, they had the assumption that uh, they were uh, very much in danger in that situation. And so their expectation of what would happen next severely shifted um, before violence happened. And if you compare that, for instance, to um, a protest happening shortly after in 2003, I think it was in Miami, the FTAA protest. Um, here, because he had, Seattle had happened before, you had severe expectations of violence. And people were, uh, when, when getting to Miami, they were already searched uh, constantly. They were, um, you know, observed by police officers and many describe how anxious they felt and how um, sort of what impact that had on, on going into the protest. And you don't have violence breaking out. Um, you do have violence breaking out at the Miami protests. Um, but, you know, the, the expectations of it didn't really make a difference other than making protesters feel bad, making police officers feel bad um, and sort of creating um, attention previously that you can then counteract. But um, I don't think there is an advantage in expecting violence. I think a big advantage is in um, knowing that violence is unlikely to happen, that you can go to a protest, that you can protest and, and you will uh, usually uh, be safe and uh, that there are things that you can do to prevent violence. Um, but you have to do them during the, uh, during the interaction with police officers or from the police side with, uh, with protesters. Um, you can have very clear and extensive communication between the two sides, um, which is something that um, on, on top of the analyzing um, video data and document data, I um, talked to as many protesters as I could and documentary filmmakers, as well as people who uploaded videos on YouTube. And I then later on also did participant observation with the Berlin police to see how do they organize uh, protests on their end. And um, Berlin police, um, has since a few years shifted their perspective to um, they they have um, used de-escalation tactics before, but now they have a very strong focus on extensive communication uh, between protesters and police. And what they would do is 
just communicate extensively with protesters throughout the protests. So they have very specific trainings for um, police officers at the protests, how they can communicate with protesters. Um, and they would have different speakers for different types of announcements. So they would train people for, for service announcements, what they call it where they would say, welcome to the protest, and this is what would happen, and this is sort of giving them a sense of order so they don't feel threatened by police and telling them what the idea is and um, basically keeping them updated. And then they have a different speaker for ordinance announcements. And this, the ordinance announcements are basically legal announcements. If they ever have to make a legal announcement that people have to disperse, for instance, they would use a different speaker. And the speaker for service announcements is very informal, often speaking in local dialect. Um, they often recruit people if there is, for instance, a soccer match they expect to to maybe turn violent um, between um, a different country and Germany, let's say Spain, they would have a Spanish-speaking um, person that could also talk to, to protesters of the other groups. So um, giving as much information as you can on what is happening um, and, and what the other side is planning. And this seems to be one of, of several aspects of what you can do throughout a protest that severely decreases um, tensions and fears of the other and that decreases rumors from spreading of expecting well the other might attack us and then you know attacking first um, I have uh, one protest in, in particular the, the protest in Kiel that I already mentioned in Germany in 2009 where there were severe expectations of violence. Um, previously, the police had declared very hard strategies if people would um, bring, um, even the, be dressed up as protest clowns and bring toilet brushes, they would arrest them. If people would get very close to police, they would arrest them. Um, but throughout the protests, you can see that protesters in the end, ex extensively communicated with police, and police started to extensively communicate with protesters. And you see that although there was initially this expectation and everyone had, in a way, prepared for violence, knowing what the other side is up to all the time um, really led to people being bored. And you see that in video footage that there was another announcement and people were like, oh, okay, this is the, I don't know how many announcements we have had that now we have to wait here because then we can go on to this intersection, etc." cetera. Um, but uh, previous research has found that, and this seems to be relevant in protests as well, that boredom really seems to counteract the emotions that you need. Uh, for violence. And if you can create that sense of, uh, you know, in a heated situation, you can create a sense of boredom. And this can be, if we want to avoid violence, this can be something that um, can have a, a pretty strong um, impact on, on how the event happens. So I think focusing on what you can do in the situations, and there are a number of guidelines that I give in the book and a number of examples of how they play out in actual protests, and um, that this is really can be a good strategy in order to uh, try to avoid uh, violence um, if protest organizers uh, want to do so uh, in the same way, um, the police and also being able to hold police accountable if they are aware of this is what we can do and then don't do that. Um, this is something that you can then uh, obviously uh, debate. So if the issue is communication with the uh, with law enforcement at the protests, then is there a far in your research? Did you find is there a far greater likelihood of protest violence when the, those protests are against the police? If these are anti-police protests, for instance, in Ferguson, does that make it so there's less communication because the thing, the people that they're protesting are the people who are the, are the ones they're supposed to be communicating with? 
Right. Um, so um, in uh, in Ferguson, and uh, I looked at a Ferguson and Baltimore protests, um, you generally have less communication from the get-go and less communication is expected. Um, communication can be one factor that can severely uh, decrease uh, tensions. Another is uh, territorial boundary crossing. So if you go uh, and leave the protest route or if police moves into um, uh, protesters' assembly spaces, um, or just being aware of escalation signs. And escalation signs is something that um, you find severely increased tensions um, in Ferguson. So um, the, the Berlin Police Department trying to avoid uh, escalation and, and violence um, completely stays away from, from using dogs and protests, from using uh, water cannon trucks, etc. Um, they would also tell me that they try not to put their helmets on whenever it is not absolutely necessary because they themselves told me, without knowing what my research is about, uh, not knowing the details at least, um, they told me, well, this is escalating the situation. So if we don't want to escalate it, we wouldn't do that. And what you would see in, uh, in Ferguson in particular, and uh, to very, uh, very um, severely, is um, coming in with uh, water can attacks, coming in with uh, tanks, with sniper rifles, with uh, canines, with um, all the equipment that uh, made the situation look like um, you know, you, the, the police was at, at war with protesters. And here, um, I think communication can be a means to de-escalate if there is, for instance, um, protesters are using property damage. There's one protest that I looked at um, in um, Ferguson where uh, property damage was happening by part of protesters. And there were protesters who tried to explain to police why other protesters would do that. They tried to explain to police, well, this is this doesn't mean that they would attack you next. This means that they are mad and they would try to explain the reasons behind the use of property damage. And this is something that can already severely decrease um, tensions and fears during the protests. And what you see is that um, throughout uh, the variety of, uh, if you look at, for instance, um, Ferguson and Baltimore protests, uh, the majority of protests that happen after a police shooting, um, again, media often suggests that, well, these are quickly to resort to violence. But if you look at um, sort of how they unfold, Actually, the opposite is true. They're just as unlikely to turn violent as, as other protests um, as well. And when they do, you often have uh, very distinct um, dynamics um, in the protest uh, itself. So you would, for instance, have um, protests um, in um, Baltimore that would go on for 10 days peacefully. And you didn't have a lot of communication between uh, police and protesters in these protests, but for 10 days you would have protests, several protests a day that stayed peaceful. And then you had a protest after 10 days at uh, Monoan Mall where violent clashes erupted. And here again, you see that missing communication coincided with a lot of other factors um, that, that I uh, describe in the book. So you had police mismanagement. Police didn't know where the units were. Police told protesters to disperse, but they didn't give them the opportunity to disperse. So there was, you know, communication, but then there wasn't enough communication to tell them, well, actually, where should we go if we are supposed to leave this area? Um, you had property damage and you had uh, escalation signs. And uh, this is 
is when you had uh, clashes. So um, communication is something that um, can severely help in a situation, if, especially if you already have territorial boundaries that are crossed, especially if you have uh, property damage that happened, um, to explain why are the protesters doing that. Uh, I have an event where in Germany um, in 2008 where protesters left the protest route and ran towards the Autobahn in Germany, which is uh, not only uh, dangerous, but also for police, this signaled an escalation of what was happening. And protest organizers told them, well, they want to get more awareness, and this is not because they you know, will become violent or will use property damage, etc. And this is sort of one part of our larger protest group, and um, this is sort of not how the police would have interpreted this uh, otherwise. And here, communication can really help calm the situation down again and avoid larger clashes, especially if um, protesters do things that um, police would otherwise expect as the first step towards towards clashes, uh, such as leaving the protest route, such as um, covering their faces, etc. You mentioned covering their faces. Uh, here in Chicago, uh, back in 2012, we had the NATO protests. And at that time, I was uh, I was attacked on social media for stating that the role of black bloc causing violence was being exaggerated in the media, while the role of police kettling of protesters was downplayed, which led to protesters responding that I should not be doing anything to support black bloc, as those protesters saw black black bloc, their actual presence, as the source of all the protest problems. So can, does black bloc have the ability to turn a peaceful protest into something violent? And is that their goal, as many protesters at the NATO protests here in Chicago back in 2012 were telling me they were on social media? Um, my analysis would suggest that no. Uh, so the black bloc, I mean, the black bloc are generally define themselves as uh, as a protest tactic that they would use, dressing up in black and covering their faces, and some of the black bloc using property damage as a form of claim making. So it's not so much, um, technically speaking, a, a protest group as it is a protest tactic performed by some groups. But um, in general, if we talk about sort of protesters dressed in black and, and label them the black bloc, um, my study would not suggest that they um, that they are the, the main cause or root cause uh, for violence to happen. What what I found quite interesting is that very often um, media uh, reporting on um, violence happening um, tends to conflate property damage with bigger clashes between protesters and police, and that uh, some like what protesters would use property damage at some protests. For instance, you had that in um, the Seattle protest in 1999, where protesters would destroy um, the store windows of major corporations. Um, to them, or not to all of them, obviously, but to many of them, this was a part of claim making to stress that they are um, against uh, they're protesting major corporations and they try to hurt them where where it hurts, which is uh, which is the wallet. So that being the idea behind the use of property damage. Um, and this is often by the police, however, perceived as the first step towards violence, physical violence between protesters and police and larger clashes, uh, as well as by uh, parts of protesters and uh, parts of the media. And thereby, of course, this has an escalating effect if property damage is used. Um, this is one of the five factors that I found during protests that can severely escalate the situation. But property damage alone doesn't need to uh, doesn't lead to violence. As I mentioned, if there is extensive communication, for instance, and, and if other factors are absent, then um, the black 
block alone, in uh, my cases that I looked at, cannot steer up the crowd. And this is um, uh, an assumption that more and more sociologists and social psychologists show is, um, is rather outdated, that the police believe that few people can steer up the larger crowd. So um, looking at, um, at, at Berlin police, they often have a distinction between um, protesters they will label green, yellow, and red. And green are the protesters there seem, seem unlikely to, to use any violence. And uh, red are the ones that they think are likely. And then yellow are the ones that could turn into into red and could join the red uh, group and and then maybe all of them could sort of spark the green group that was initially peaceful to be violent. I haven't found that in, in my protests and uh, social psychologists looking at um, protests um, haven't uh, found that either. Um, generally, if you have a few staring at the crowd, this can lead to um, other protesters um, you know, in Seattle, there were many that tried to stop them um, that clearly showed they did not identify with this type of claim making. And um, the sort of the escalating effect of it really, uh, for a large part, lies in um, the assumption that this is a first step towards violence, which it is an it can have an escalating effect, but this doesn't necessarily mean that violence will follow. There is a lot. Um, you can do to counteract that, uh, for instance, extensive communication. So um, individuals trying to stir up a crowd, um, if it were police or if it were protesters, I was surprised to see that this um, this effect did not happen in any of my protests. I had um, one of the protests I looked at where I had uh, so-called black bloc protesters that tried to push. Uh, there was uh, the march had to come to a stop because there was a building burning on, on the other side of uh, of the road, and uh, police were standing in front of po protesters. And then there were black bloc protesters that tried to push the protest crowd against police. So clearly, tried to escalate the situation. But in that protest. The interactions uh, between protesters and police in the front line were so, there was so much communication between them. Um, the, the police, there wasn't any mismanagement. They knew what would happen next. They uh, had the feeling, which seems to be extremely important to police uh, in Germany, but especially the US, to be in control of what is happening. Um, no one had crossed any territorial boundaries. Um, and um, so here, the pushing and the trying to escalate the situation didn't have any effect. And I saw that several times of people seemingly try to escalate um, and in the end uh, not being able uh, to do so because it takes more than just a few people um, for a protest to turn violent. It takes larger crowds of people that assume that routine interactions have broken down. We cannot rely on the structures we usually rely on. The other group is here to attack us and we are in severe danger. And this is usually when violence happens. Wow, that's really fascinating. We've been speaking with sociologist Anne Nassauer. She is author of Situational Breakdowns, Understanding Protest Violence and Other Surprising Outcomes. Anne is assistant professor of sociology at the John F. Kennedy Institute for North American Studies at Freie Universität Berlin. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, and our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience <laughs> is going to hate your response. You were just mentioning how you found the five factors to escalation that may lead to protest violence. With your analysis of situational breakdown, how predictable 
is violence at protests? Is there a pattern of, of not only a pattern of mistakes made by both sides that are easily avoidable, but are they easy to detect? And you know, are they easy to detect? And can it be completely predictable? I think they are pretty easy to detect, which is, I guess, the positive message. Uh, so, um, for instance, a group leaving the, the protest route or uh, police going into the protesters' assembly square, these are very easy to, to, to detect as territorial boundary crossings, and they have a severe escalating effect. And then you already know, okay, if now communication breaks down in addition and there is mismanagement outside of the police, then we will have a problem. So I think um, a lot of these are pretty straightforward, um, and I give a lot of examples of how they, they play out uh, in the book. And I think there is um, uh, not a predictability of previously, you will know how it will turn out, but it gives you a lot of leeway to handle the situation once you're in it, knowing, well, this has already happened now. And it, you know if this and that would, would now happen in addition, um, we might have uh, the other group assume that we will attack them. And in order to counteract that, we could uh, now uh, do this or that. Um, and sort of change this, uh, change the interpretation that is that is starting to happen here, um, and uh, try to change uh, that um, this will this will erupt in clashes. So I think there is um, a lot of uh, sort of these these uh, factors are quite straightforward in the way you can react to them and in the way you can try uh, to avoid them if you know what to look for, if you know that you should actually look at what happens in the situation. I know police officers and I know protesters, and I think both could learn a lot from this book. This is a really fascinating work, and we've been speaking with sociologist Ann Nassauer, author of Situational Breakdowns. Write this down, protesters and police. Situational Breakdowns, Understanding <laughs> Protest Violence and Other Surprising Outcomes. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell. The United States has changed over the last few decades. It wasn't that long ago that the rise of the far right seemed like nothing more than a fantasy by a handful of racists. Now look where we are. Self-proclaimed fascists in the streets violently targe targeting those who oppose fascism in the streets violently <laughs> are lumped together as equally bad by the president of the United States. So what happened? How did the U.S. change? Well... Our next guest tracks it all back to our changing justice system. We'll try to wrap our minds around how the U.S. changed when we talk to political theory and constitutional law scholar Jack Jackson, author of Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics, and the American Right. I think there's something going on with my mic that's making my voice lower than it actually is. I have no idea how we can change that. Alex, what have you been up to on social media? Uh, maybe it's working on me too. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a terrible joke. I posted a thing on Facebook about UBI that people got all mad about. Oh, uh, that was pretty funny. Uh, and an article called basic income bows to the master, uh, for open democracy that I liked a lot. Um, also cause it talks about how it doesn't change our relationship with money, which is actually maybe the problem. And we got a comment with the word obsequiousness in it like three or four times. So yeah. that, I like that. I am looking up what that means. <laughs> uh, also I shared a new piece by former and uh, future guest, Max Zerngast about his trial in Turkey, and uh, the good news is uh, he is free, and the bad news is uh, Turkey isn't. Yeah. Uh, that was great. And uh, yeah, we're going to get him back on the show, I think, soon. And then also a great piece by the writer Sam Chris on speech and fascism and uh, YouTube. 
that I really liked a lot called uh, Voice from the Black Hole. Uh, and then also uh, all of the links that we post on Facebook, um, I'm go even the ones that people get mad about, I'm going to start collecting and posting uh, on a reading list on Sunday mornings. So uh, if you miss any of this stuff or if you are not on Facebook for some blessed reason, uh, go to This Is Hell's website uh, Sunday mornings and I'll have everything that we read for the show and then for fun. Oh, and uh, also I'm not going to add this onto the reading list. I shared a gross <laughs> pic of Chuck's spider bite on his arm on Instagram. And uh, people are saying that, yes, yeah, you should get medical attention. <laughs> how's, how's your spider bite going? Uh, it's going better. So I've been uh, spraying stop pain on it. Let me tell you what this stuff is. It's it's BS. Uh, oh, my God. You have it sitting right next to you. Yeah, because if it starts itching, I got to spray this stuff on it in order for it to stop itching. You know, it's just like, what's it called here? Uh, pain relieving liquid spray. And so it, it kind of numbs it a little bit and that helps. But then I was talking. I think I've seen you order that at the bar. Well, then I was talking to somebody at uh, at the uh, off, during office hours, and they said, "Have you ever tried neem oil? N e e m oil?" And they said you could get across the street at Parabirdi, the convenience store. And so I went over and got that. It's a oil from a tree in India. And our friend Sunil said that uh, he, where he lives, there are neem trees all over the place. He said when it's like 110 degrees outside, you go underneath a neem tree, and it's like you're in air conditioning. So uh, somebody told me put neem oil on it. And it's working great. It's really working fantastic. So if you get bitten by a spider, I would suggest, or any bug, I would suggest neem oil. And by the way, I, I was wondering how, you know, is this a bed bug bite? And somebody said, oh, no, they go in lines of like three to five. And the way that they discuss it is uh, the bed bug has breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then goes back for dessert. is that an interesting <laughs> Again, another public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell. It's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Andrew, who joins us for This Is Hell Office Hours on Wednesday nights at Carrie's Lounge, the bar beneath this here studio. He writes, hey, Chuck and Alex, I know it's a bit late for Listener Appreciation Month. Yeah, that was two months ago. But at some point in the future, I think it would be great to get Helen Zhao on the show. She wrote an article recently for the first issue of Science for the People magazine to be released in 30 years that I think you and a lot of your listeners would enjoy and learn from. Wow, a 30-year break. I included the link at the bottom of this here email. If you're not familiar, Science for the People is a group of radical scientists that first organized during the anti-war movement of the 60s and was reborn a few years ago. Thanks, Andrew. So then he, uh, the Helen Zhao article that Andrew sent is titled, What is a Radical Analysis of Science? New Directions for Science for the People. And Andrew's correct. That is right up our alley and that I have no freaking idea what a radical analysis of science would be. And if we're clueless about a topic like situational breakdowns, that's when we're most interested. The more we can learn from a guest, the better. So thanks, Andrew. We'll be looking into having Helen Zhao on the show. We got an email all the way from Newcastle, Australia, so it took weeks to get here. Braden writes, hi, Chuck and Alex. I'd like to suggest as a guest comedian Sammy Shaw, who was formerly the host, writer, producer, and director of News Weekly, which I think is the Pakistan Daily Show-style TV program that Mor uh, Morris Berman mentioned in a recent Patreon-archived interview of This Is Hell. He performs as a stand-up comedian here in Australia since 2012, is an award-winning author and a presenter on our national broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Company, ABC. He's made programs for the ABC exploring the nature of free speech, called Shut Up, and the variety of Muslim culture and experience in Australia, 
called the Islamic Republic of Australia. He's a fantastic speaker and very funny person. I think he'd make an excellent guest for the show. Happy 20th anniversary again, Braden. Problem is, Braden, it's 15 hours in the future in Australia. And please send an email to tell us what the future looks like because I am really curious. Which means when we air our show live or live stream our show, we can't have anyone on from Australia. That said, one of the things we can now do with our very own studio is be a bit more flexible with our schedule so we can interview guests from all over the world. So I'm putting Sammy Shaw in the Australia guest folder. Who knows? Maybe we'll do an all-Australia guest show with our new studio. Steve emails us from New Haven, Connecticut, writing, Chuck and Alex, thank you so much for your July 20th interview with political scientist Stephen Davis, author of In Defense of Public Lands, The Case Against Privatization and Transfer. It was essential listening. My two biggest fears with President Trump, the total number is too high to count, have been the courts and the environment. Davis's book explains how they are related. Rather than be dismayed, however, I was heartened, heartened, to hear how activists are being supported by hunters and other nature lovers in the fight to protect public lands. I was also reminded about the importance of voting as activism. We need to get mobilized and stay that way. Best, Stephen. Stephen, I too was heartened to hear how anti-land privatization activists are being supported by hunters and other nature lovers in the fight to protect public lands because too often the stereotype is hunters and hate environmentalists and environmentalists hate hunters and that's simply not true as I know plenty of environmentalists who hunt and plenty of Hunters who fight for the environment. Last month, I was talking to two hunters in my family, and they were incredibly upset about how more and more it's becoming difficult to find places to hunt as so much land is being bought up by private concerns who are then diligently posting no hunting signs on their property, making it hard to control the deer population and fight against invasive species like wild boar that are devastating the environment and have no natural predators. So, Stephen, color me heartened. The next email, I'm not going to say who it's from, nor am I going to mention the actual location that the emailer mentions in their very brief message. You'll understand why in a couple of seconds. Chuck, I visited a cannabis farm yesterday in blank. They are hiring like crazy, so if your friends in blank need a job, I'll make an introduction. And in fact, my friends in blank do need work, and as they're all veterans of the cannabis industry with years of experience in the manufacture and distribution of cannabis, I am certain their stellar resumes will impress your farmer friend in blank. Thanks, Anonymous Tip, sir. We really appreciate it. I was on the Ron Placone podcast back in July, and after being on a show, I told all of you how much I sucked on Ron's show, and I was deeply sorry. Then a few people here in Chicago who had never heard of This Is Hell before showed up at our annual listener appreciation party and art show telling me they actually thought I was good on Rod's podcast. I guess there's no accounting for taste. Then I got this email. Hi, Chuck. Ron Placone here. First off, my audience loved you. You didn't suck at all, dude. Also, I wanted to bring a campaign I'm helping out with to your attention. It is to ban facial recognition. More info about it is below, and the website to sign the petition is banfacialrecognition.com. 
you could give this a mention on the show, tweet anything at all, it'd be infinitely appreciated. Thanks, Ron. So if you are opposed to facial recognition, go to banfacialrecognition.com and sign the petition to contact your lawmakers and demand they support banning facial recognition. Oakland, California, as well as San Francisco and Somerville, Massachusetts have already banned facial recognition. And that list continues to grow. So go to banfacialrecognition.com. As an aside, since birth, my vision has also banned facial recognition. So again, I guess I'm ahead of the curve. That's listener feedback. If you want to contact us and possibly have your email read on air, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Send us a message at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or send us a direct message via Twitter at thisishellradio. There's a showing of the incredible art of the late, great Wesley Willis, the voice at the end of our show every week, who does the closing. Uh, According to the website Block Club Chicago, the work of late Chicago cult favorite artist and underground musician Wesley Willis brings some spirited color and a deep affection for the city to a West Town gallery. Wesley Willis, City of Many Dreams, opened yesterday at Matthew Rochman, R-A-C-H-M-A-N, Gallery, 1659 West Chicago Avenue. And it will share a comprehensive collection of the drawings Willis made from 1981 to 1991. The pieces in this show represent the earliest artwork Willis produced, including his very first drawing. Some of it has never appeared in public. The drawings come from the collection of T. Paul Young, an architect who met Willis in the 1980s and supported his artistic endeavors, introducing him to other artists and architecture students. In the show's works, often drawn initially in blue pen, then colored with felt-tip markers or colored pencils, Willis shared his fascination and incredible memory for the Chicago he loved, its skyscrapers, trains, houses, and expressways. The show runs until November 17th. You can find out more at MatthewRochmanGallery.com. This week's question from Al is, what are you infusing with CBD? What are you infusing with CBD? Leave your your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Then listen after our following guest and find out if you're the winner. And if you did win, you will get a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can view right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Again, the question from hell is, what are you infusing with CBD? Leave your response on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, how changes in the justice system have pushed the U.S. toward the far right? The UAW selling out its workers has led to the UAW strike against GM. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders if it's worth having heroes. We'll also tell you what we've been doing on our Patreon podcast. Uh, We'll have, of course, the question from hell. Uh, We want to thank listeners for sharing the show online, as well as some for supporting us. We'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes. And during the next break, I'll tell you about an anti-violence vigil happening here in Chicago and later on this week's show. I'll share with you what happened to me this week when I went online searching for fun. And did I find fun? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. The United States has changed. And no, it's not all Trump's fault. Although, Although Trump is a kind of culmination of everything that has changed in the U.S. for the worse over the last few decades. Here to help us understand how and why the U.S. has changed so much 
and what that means for justice, political theory, and constitutional law scholar Jack Jackson is author of Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics, and the American Right. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jack. Good morning, Chuck. How are you? Good. Uh, Jack teaches at Whitman College. His teaching and research is at the intersection of political theory and U.S. constitutional law. Jack has been the Fulbright Visiting Research Chair in Constitutional and Political Theory at McGill University, a visiting scholar at Emory Law School's Vulnerability and Human Condition Initiative, a fellow at UC Berkeley's Townsend Center for the Humanities, and an Ella Baker Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights. He serves on the Board of Directors of the Homeless Action Center, a nonprofit law firm in Berkeley, California. You begin the preface, this is not a book about Donald Trump or the Trump presidency. Nevertheless, I want to begin with an incident from the early days of the Trump presidency to highlight the broad political condition. The book explores the paradoxical erosion of constitutional grounds via constitutional action, the discursive collapse of the rule of law with the Constitution, and the uncritical embrace and celebration of the Constitution rule of law by liberals of the simultaneous turn against the tumultuousness of politics, a turn sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit. In some sense, we begin, we begin with Trump to think past and move beyond him to properly think about the present. Before I ask you a whole bunch of questions about Donald Trump, why, sure. is, it, why is it important to move beyond Trump to best understand what is happening with the Constitution and the rule of law? Sure. So I should say that I was um, the book was near completion. Actually, um, I was writing the book ends with the Merrick Garland uh, case where the Senate refused to grant uh, Judge Merrick Garland a hearing uh, in 2016, and I thought that would be the end of the book. Um, and as the book was nearing completion, the election uh, of 2016, the election of, of Trump occurred, and so I paused uh, and decided that it was important to write about Trump because suddenly the thesis of the book. Uh, that we might be facing certain kinds of disintegrations of uh, constitutional norms, I think became uh, perhaps for the first time clear to people to whom it had not been quite clear. Um, and I uh, also wanted to start with Trump uh, and to move past Trump, because part of what the book is doing, or I hope that the book is doing, is uh, countering a certain kind of nostalgia uh, that I think uh, has, uh, you see the nostalgia in all the cases in the book, that there's a certain kind of eruption of anti-constitutional politics on the right. Uh, there's a sort of a shock by many on the liberal left uh, and a desire to return back to the moment prior to that eruption and shock. And I think that uh, today, I think you see this especially around the Joe Biden campaign, uh, not just there. I think it permeates uh, many sectors of the Democratic Party, a desire that if we can just get back to, say, uh, November 1st of 2016, um, things will be back to normal. And so the book, trying to start with Trump, but really think beyond Trump, is to uh, show that the constitutional disintegration uh, most surely precedes him, uh, and that a desire to return back to November 1st, 2016, um, is a profoundly problematic desire for a left politics. I find it to be a very problematic uh, issue as well. But uh, what does the left miss when they only see what what does the left miss and something especially something that they should not miss when they only see this as a Trump era phenomenon? 
Um, well, I, I think what they miss is uh, some of the cases that I, I worked through in the in the book. So the um, the book begins with uh, uh, Bush v. Gore, a uh, rather infamous Supreme Court case, and uh, also covers the torture memos, the rise of the torture regime, and the um, Bush administration, uh, the really spectacular and rather odd case of Terry Schiavo, uh, and uh, the Merrick, it concludes with the uh, refusal to grant Merrick Garland a hearing. And so part of what I think what we're missing is a, um, the long-term slow disintegration of constitutional norms uh, on the American right. And this is being res- one response, and I think it's a, uh, it's a dominant response uh, in every single instance, when they went back and looked and did the research, you know, how were people talking about these cases? And in almost every single case, there's a desire to just simply return back, not to the rule of law, but to the Constitution. And so this desire to return back to the Constitution, I think, is um, blocking, disallowing, um, not facilitating um, a proper critique of how problematic both the Constitution is and how terribly problematic the interpretation of the Constitution has been uh, over the past couple of decades. So when you have a nostalgia, let's return to the Constitution, let's return to the rule of law before this or that event, and you have it paired with a desire to put politics aside, what you end up with is a rather conservative and reactionary fantasy life that has somehow implanted itself in the American liberal left. Do you think the liberal left then is moving to the right with this kind of thinking? Oh, I think I think they are. Um, uh, one example um, from the book, um, when, the, when the torture regime emerged in all of its publicity, um, there was a desire, uh, we have to return back to the, to the rule of law. And spaces like Guantanamo Bay, um, which are still open uh, after uh, eight years of the Obama administration, uh, spaces like Guantanamo Bay were seen as the problem and the solution uh, by many liberals in the United States was we have to close places like Guantanamo Bay and reincorporate incorporate uh, these uh, prisoners into the American legal system. And as we reincorporate these prisoners into the American li- uh, legal system, it's really important that we set politics aside when we do so. This is really a technical issue. And so you had instances in the, uh, in the Bush years, and it continues to this day, uh, where the desire was, we'll close Guantanamo Bay and send prisoners to Supermax. So you end up, at the end of the day, of having at the end of a liberal vision uh, the affirmation of the normalcy and decency of our um, rather cruel prison system here in the United States because it's figured as not aberrational and because it's figured as uh, the rule of law, a return to the rule of law and the Constitution. So in some weird way, some of our most reactionary um, institutions and discourses have become the language of resistance to these uh, genuinely troubling uh, moves movements on the American right. I want to ask you about this, because uh, you mentioned this at the beginning of your book as well, uh, about, uh, as you call it, Trump's theatrical pardon of Joe Arpaio, the sheriff from Arizona, who imposed, a, as you point out, a policing regime in his jurisdiction that trafficked in anti-immigrant politics, and he implemented a harsh order of racial profiling to further his anti-immigrant policy as sheriff. His signature was cruelty and humiliation. He even You've talked yeah. about the uh, open cages, outdoor cages under blazing sun where people had to be uh, in trip triple-digit heat. And you write how when some nativist constituents asked why there were no concentration camps for the illegals, Arpaio assured them that, in fact, there was a concentration camp in Maricopa County. Uh, so yes. is is the right 
Because a couple weeks ago, we spoke with Dick Hunsinger, who posted an article at the website Cosmonaut titled Holocaust Capitalism. Dick starts his article by writing, today the left has come to a common acceptance that the detention centers in which migrants are incarcerated at the U.S.-Mexico border are concentration camps. Is the right in the U.S. pro-concentration camp? Does having concentration camps create a political liability for the right, or is it a political asset that he can take advantage of and actually increase support from the right? Because I'm wondering what that might reveal about the state of the right when it comes to justice. Hmm. That's a fantastic question. Um, I think you probably can't understand our current moment unless you take seriously the idea um, that sadism can be an organizing political principle. Um, that is, I think that the spectacular forms of cruelty are not incidental or accidental, um, and nor do they have a particular kind of utility uh, other than simply um, displaying the cruelty for um, the crowds to see. So I, I do think that the, and I think many people have made this point that the cruelty is the point. Uh, I think uh, Sheriff Joe Ohio made that made that uh, explicit as as well. I mean, give them some credit. Uh, they're not hiding anything from us, are they? You know, when they ask, oh, we should have concentration camps, they've come out and said it. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, we do have concentration camps. So, you know, part of uh, part of in the past, part of the project of the left has been to try and demystify uh, orders and organizations of power. But um, these organizations and orders of power are just staring at us in the face today. Um, the other thing I wanted to note about the, you know, you took us to the um, concentration camps at the border, uh, tens of thousands now, many children. Uh, we have the concentration camps or in, in Arizona, Guantanamo Bay is still open. And I think that uh, what you just did, that narrative of taking us to all these different places and noting the similarity, is really one of the, um, one of the things I'm trying to get out of the book, uh, or the, one of the arguments I'm trying to make in the book. And I think what has happened, or I, I know what has happened in the case of Guantanamo and torture, is that Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and Bagram Airbase, these were figured as exceptional and exterior, and, and not just geographically, but normatively uh, to American law. And I think the story you just uh, told uh, showed what we miss when we think that, and that what we miss when we think that is what I'm hoping to get us to see in the book. And when it comes to Arpaio's pad, uh, uh, pardon, just one last thing, what does it say sure. to you about how the right views the law when President Trump pardons, even glorifies, and the, and the right pardons and glorifies a law enforcement officer who, number one, broke the law, number two, ignored court or, orders and continued to break the yeah. law, was found guilty of breaking the law, even sentenced to jail time for committing a crime, that violated the Constitution that Arpaio was sworn to protect. What does that say about how the right views the law? Yeah, well, we should also, um, I want to also specify the specific provisions. It was equal protection. Uh, so it's the constitutional principle of equality, um, not just the Constitution abstractly that um, Arpaio was found guilty of. Um, it's worth reminding your listeners that the uh, so much it feels a hundred years ago since that pardon, doesn't it? Um, but that pardon was the uh, very first pardon of the of the Trump um, administration, and. Um, if you go back and look at the uh, language used to justify the pardon, and I compared this in the book uh, to the pardon of, of Richard Nixon, if you go back and look at the statement by uh, President Ford when he pardons Nixon, um, he doesn't exonerate 
Nixon. Uh, he says, you, you know, he's already suffered enough. That's debatable. Um, it will be better for the country if we, we move on from this unfortunate uh, set of events. That's also debatable. Uh, but he doesn't celebrate uh, the crimes of Richard Nixon and the pardon. What you get in the Trump pardon, if you look at it, uh, Trump says, I'm pardoning Arpaio uh, because he is a great American who has done heroic deeds. And so, well, what are, you might say, well, he's done heroic deeds and this particular crime is a blemish, and therefore we'll recognize the heroic deeds and look past this blemish. But that's not what happened. What happened is that President Trump said that these crimes, these crimes against fundamental constitutional principle of equality, the crimes against equality are themselves what make the sheriff a hero. And... At that moment, it seems to me that the pardon power, which is granted to the president with very little, um, if no formal constitutional constraints put on it, the constitutional power of the pardon is now being turned and used as a weapon against basic constitutional principles of equality. And I think that tells you something about uh, the view of the law, that it's um, terribly instrumental um, and that it's not particularly being deployed to vindicate fundamental constitutional principles, but turned against them. And it's not simply being turned against specific constitutional principles, although it is. I think it is ultimately eroding and undermining the very idea of uh, constitutional and constitutional democracy in the U.S., so what will be the uh, Trump legacy when it comes to presidential political pardoning? I think, well, I think that's still very much an open question. Uh, he has, it's been reported, I think it was uh, this month, a couple of months ago, that he has been apparently uh, uh, dangling pardons uh, in front of various uh, administrative officials and police officials at the border, uh, ICE, for example, uh, suggesting that uh, if they violate the law, uh, that he will be there um, to pardon them. So I think the weaponization of the pardon power uh, against constitutional democracy, and in particular the constitutional rights of some of our most vulnerable populations, I think that legacy is still very much um, open. And I think that the legacy of the Trump presidency depends very much on the kind of resistance uh, that we bring to it. And uh, part of the, my argument in the book is that uh, the kind of uh, discourse that much of the liberal left is trapped in uh, enfeebles any kind of um, effective resistance to these um, erosions broadly, and in the Trump case, I think, in particular. So what would you think would be the outcome if uh, police know that their abuse, they can abuse with impunity because they know they will be pardoned or they can assume that they will be pardoned. How do you think that would have an effect on policing in the United States? Um, well, it, well I, I think it would, uh, seems to me logically that it would ratchet up the capacity for even uh, more uh, extreme forms of uh, unchecked violence against uh, vulnerable populations in the society. And we should say, I mean, even before, and, and this maybe gets to my point of trying not to think so much about Trump or simply romanticize the law, uh, that uh, police violence is already running riot in the United States. And it's been running riot, uh, particularly against minority communities, immigrant communities. Uh, it's been running riot very much within the law. 
uh, that's when we've uh, seen the rise of Black Lives Matter. It's been a protest against the rule of law or the particular uh, formation and iteration of the rule of law in which uh, prosecutors don't prosecute, uh, juries do not convict. And even if you get uh, that, then you have uh, presidents pardoning. So I think the, the, the weaponization of the pardon power is serious. It demands resistance. Uh, but when we do so, I think it would be a terrible mistake to say – with the rise of Trump, now we have state violence. Now, now we have uh, vulnerable populations experiencing um, uh, police brutality. It's precisely that kind of erasure um, that I think a Trump-centric uh, critique, which traffics in a nostalgia for an apolitical return to the rule of law, is producing. You were mentioning how the um, pardon for Arpaio was a direct kind of condemnation, if you will, from the President of the United States uh, uh, on uh, the equal protection that is guaranteed in the 14th Amendment, which you write guarantees, as you said, the equal protection of the law. It seems to be it, that, that 14th Amendment, it seems to be a real sticking point for conservatism, as described in the Heritage Foundation report, the Constitution from a conservative perspective. The report states, using an imper- interpretive device known as the doctrine of incorporation, the federal courts use the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to obliterate the reserved powers of the states respecting nearly all of the liberties enumerated in the Bill of Rights, thereby accomplishing a complete nationalization of all civil liberties and overturning the main purpose of the first ten amendments. Why are conservatives so concerned with the 14th Amendment? And has, as conservatives argue, have they, as the amendment and the Constitution been misinterpreted, leading to, as the report calls it, a nationalization of our civil liberties? Because I thought the Constitution, I thought the Bill of Rights was not something that states can choose to abide by or not. Right. Um, I, I haven't read that report, but that's, um, I would love to get a copy of it. It's fascinating. I'll send it to you. First of all, it's, yeah, thank you. It's um, well. There's a certain kind of irony we have to note. Uh, the conservatives on the Supreme Court and in the lower courts as well um, have been quite eager um, to strike down uh, or threaten to strike down state laws that uh, regulate firearms under the Second Amendment. So, for the Second Amendment, uh, for example, to be uh, applied to strike down uh, regulations by cities and states, you have to do the very thing that they uh, are apparently claiming in the memo you just read that shouldn't happen. So uh, if the conser- we should ask the, our conservative friends, do you really think, or are you arguing that the Second Amendment really only applies to the federal government and not the states? I would be curious uh, what the Heritage Foundation uh, says about that. Um, I do think it is... Um, you know, the doctrine of a corporation and the nationalization of the Bill of Rights, it, um, it is a post-14th Amendment uh, phenomenon. Early on in uh, constitutional history, the case of Barron versus Baltimore, came up, does the, do the Bill of Rights apply to the states? And the Supreme Court said no. And uh, as you noted, it's through the uh, due process uh, clause of the 14th Amendment that over a period of time, uh, really in the early 20th century, uh, through the through the Warren Court, that most of the provisions of the Bill of Rights um, now apply to the state. So we have, uh, if the federal government violates our First Amendment rights, we don't say that's bad, but it's okay if uh, New York State violates our First Amendment rights. We say, if government power violates our First Amendment rights, that's a constitutional problem. That is, it doesn't hinge on where the power is emanating from uh, 
in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the federal structure there. I think the 14th Amendment provides um, all kinds of problems, actually, for American uh, conservatism broadly um, and uh, for constitutional conservatives in particular. Um, I don't think equality is necessarily the um, foundational principle of American conservatism. So when we see uh, Donald Trump pardoning those who violate equal protection, it doesn't seem to me to be a terrible aberration from American conservatism. Uh, as I uh, mentioned in the, the book, uh, Corey Robin, in a really wonderful new book on American conservatism, reminds us that in the mid-20th century, um, conservatives like William F. Buckley Jr. and others were arguing in defense of uh, racial segregation and apartheid in the United States. So the constitutionalization and nationalization of equality as a principle, I think, rests uneasily with the conservatism that is at home with traditions um, of hierarchy. I also think, uh, in a broader sense, that the 14th Amendment, and maybe we'll include all the Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, um, are a problem for conservatism because I think in the rhetoric, uh, the political rhetoric and discourse of the right, there is a profound um, celebration, almost idolatry of the founding. And what happens when you get to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, our founders are perhaps no longer James Madison, uh, they're Frederick Douglass and Thaddeus Stevens and Abraham uh, Lincoln. So I think it throws in a certain kind of crisis of um, origin uh, origin worship, if I could put it that way. So um, on the, and Trump, this, um, I promise this is my last question about the Joe Arpaio yeah. pardon. Uh, on Trump's pardon of Arpaio, uh, as you write, uh, the New York Times described it, the president used his constitutional power to block a federal judge's effort to enforce the Constitution. This excused the law- lawlessness of an official who had sworn to defend the constitutional structure. How unprecedented is it to use the powers of the Constitution to undermine the rights protected by the Constitution? Because I'm sure Donald Trump's the first person who ever did it. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in terms of unprecedentedness, um, I mean, I do think that that kind of, um, you know, pardons can be tawdry. Uh, I cite in the book, uh, you know, Bill Clinton uh, providing pardons to some of the party funders of of, of the Democratic Party. Um, but this kind of sort of naked um, weaponization of the pardon power um, against uh, basic constitutional principles uh, does strike me as unique. But as I point out in the book, this phenomenon of having, and it's a, it's a kind of a bizarre paradox, where we have constitutional powers Trump isn't claiming the power of um, exterior to the Constitution. He's claiming a constitutional power, much as the Senate did in the uh, Merrick Garland case, saying, look, we have this constitutional power, advise and consent. But when you have these powers turned in uh, really quite bad faith um, against basic constitutional principles, um, that seems to me to be a particular kind of problem. And as I point out in the book, it's a problem that's been occurring with some frequency in the first decades um, of the 20th century um, in particular. I do want to say one quick thing, though, about um, conservative opinion in Arpaio, and I note it in the book. Uh, to be fair, uh, there were conservative voices who opposed the president on this. Uh, I think it was the editorial board of um, both the National Review and the Wall Street Journal 
um, to their credit, uh, called out and perhaps even used some of the language quite similar to the uh, New York Times editorial board uh, and condemning the president. But they had to, in their condemnations, note that they were uh, isolated and somewhat perhaps lonely voices on the American right on this question. Uh, and that uh, for many on the American right, both the sheriff and the president who pardoned him uh, remain heroes precisely because of their violations of equal protection. Is anti-constitutionalism then not as embraced by conservatives as we might think? Is it more of a farther right embrace or is is that what uh, anti-constitutionalism, is it anti-conservative? Um, that's a great question. Um, when we say, this may be a little bit tricky thinking about political spectrums, when we say further to the right, it makes it sound like it might be marginal. So I think part of what I'm trying to highlight in the book of, okay, let's even assume that's a far right position. The far right is increasingly the mainstream of the Republican Party. Um, so the far right is the Republican Party. Now, you do have divisions and disagreements. Um, I think in almost all the cases in this uh, uh, book um, that I cite, um, you know, for instance, the torture memos that uh, came out of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Bush administration, uh, it was a conservative lawyer who um, withdrew them uh, uh, after. So there were some con uh, voices of dissent and conservatism, just as there are some uh, never-Trump uh, Republicans right now. But they are, um, I think, on the decline, uh, increasingly marginal and increasingly converting as offering less and less dissent. I, um, as I said, I conclude the book with the Merrick Garland, the refusal of the Senate to grant Merrick Gar Judge Merrick Garland a hearing, um, which was also articulated by the Republicans in the Senate as a refusal as a matter of principle to grant a hearing to any nominee, not just Merrick Garland. And uh, I, if memory serves me correct, not one single senator uh, in, the, in the Republican caucus, not one single senator broke ranks on that. So the anti-constitutional politics that I'm tracking and uh, noting in the book, it seems to me, are uh, the, that's a political movement that's ascendant in the United States, and I think in many ways dominant on the American right today. You write, the disintegration of constitutional norms should thus emancipate us from longing only for a return home to the Constitution, as political feminist and legal theorist Bonnie Honig has uh, helpfully reminded us. There are many varieties of constitutionalism, including popular constitutionalism, many of which were casualties of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia. You add, rather than return home by way of Philadelphia, this book invites the reader to consider the possibility of setting sail for new shores. Do we need a new constitution that is impervious to undermining the constitutional rights that are guaranteed in the current constitution? And, and was writing a constitution that can be used to undermine the very rights it promises, was that a simple mistake that has led to unintended consequences? Um, so the my argument there, to, or my, it's an argument, but it really is truly also an invitation uh, to the readers and also your listeners that when we confront this um, anti-constitutional politics, um, which we are confronting, that as I said, as I think is descendant, there is a great temptation 
and you see it in every single one of the cases that I um, explore in the book and the, the legal discourse, political discourse, popular discourse. We have to return back and defend the Constitution. Um, I think it was Professor Lawrence Tribe who uh, uh, said that in the Arpaio case, that we are in new waters and um, our safe harbor is back to the Constitution. Uh, part of the argument throughout the book is um, we need to resist that nostalgia. And I'll just give you a couple of reasons why. In the uh, Bush v. Gore case, uh, you know, there was a, a, the court stepped in and said, well, we're going to apply this one standard, equal protection. Uh, therefore, the recount must stop in the, in the Florida case. This was the 2000 election between uh, Bush and Gore. Uh, and we're only going to apply it in this one case. And you had many uh, on the liberal left saying, uh, we have to, this is, un, this is unconstitutional. I'm calling it um, anti-constitutional. And we have to get back uh, to the Constitution and the rule of law. What I think has been um, not well noted, and indeed many times erased in this uh, nostalgia, is that it's the Constitution itself um, which makes possible a president to come into office w without winning the majority of the vote. So a perfectly constitutional moment, that is the election of the president, can also be a perfectly anti-democratic moment, um, as we saw with um, Trump in 2016 as well, losing the popular vote, uh, but uh, uh, winning the presidency. Uh, another example I'll use from uh, 2000, uh, many uh, Americans, and in particular a disproportionate impact on Africa, Americans uh, were excluded from even participating in democracy in the 2000 election, as well as all the way through today in the 2016 election. And um, they were blocked because they had felon felony records. Uh, and as uh, many scholars have noted, I think probably most notably uh, and most recently, Michelle Alexander in her um, wonderful uh, uh, book, The New Jim Crow, points out uh, policing and imprisonment, uh, that these track historical racial lines of apartheid in the United States. So, and the court has held, the Supreme Court has held, that it is constitutional to deny someone the right to vote if it's based simply on felony status. And the court has said it's okay to do this even if it has a disproportionate impact on racial minorities. So that is perfectly consistent uh, with the rule of law in the United States right now. So we miss this, I think, uh, when we say or when we overly romanticize um, the U.S. Constitution, that we miss its, um, I think, in many ways, profound hostility to the promises of democracy. And that's by original design. You quote 20th century conservative activist and Roman Catholic writer L. Brent Bozell, Jr., writing, right. To stamp out world communism, I would be willing to destroy the entire universe, even to the furthest star. Is the right, are Republicans and conservatives using the Constitution to undermine the rights guaranteed in the Constitution as they see it in a fight against communism? Does the right view the Constitution or any of the rights it guarantees as communist? Uh, well, and if you uh, uh, go back in the, um, you know, to the actually from the New Deal on through the uh, through the uh, Warren Court Revolution, um, you see a, a lot of uh, conflation of uh, defending, or as a, as you said, the Heritage Foundation, the nationalizing of rights, um, were uh, conflated with uh, communist conspiracies. Now, this was primarily quarantined to the to the John Birch Society and and uh, that constellation of activists, but I don't think entirely, um, entirely so. The quote you just read from Bazell, um, what I found so fascinating about it is it seems to me to highlight uh, another dimension that I try and think about, the anti-constitutional right, and that is its hostility to uh, the future. 
And um, we have a profoundly, I think, um, we, have a, we have a problem in the United States in that I think a large part of the population, um, as a matter of either political desire um, or a theological hope, uh, have a certain kind of apocalyptic orientation towards political life and the world. Um, I was looking up, uh, I cited a quote in the uh, stat in the book that by the mid-1980s, uh, something like 40% of Americans said that when the the Bible speaks of uh, uh, the end of times, it means that we ourselves will initiate it by blowing up the planet uh, with nuclear arms. I found a more recent uh, statistic on this, and it's around the same number, that uh, something about 40% of Americans when polled think that they are living uh, in the end times as prophesized uh, by apocalypse, certain uh, apocalyptic readings um, of Christianity. And what I'm arguing in the book is that if you have that kind of saturated um, apocalyptic thinking, that that's the kind of thinking that I think is incompatible with um, the idea of a constitution and constitutionalism, uh, which hopes to carry something forward that's been constituted. We are speaking with Jack Jackson. He is a political theory and constitutional law scholar and author of Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics and the American Right. You, quote, rejected Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork, writing in his 1990 book, The Tempting of America, The Political Seduction of the Law. Uh, great book, by the way. I love the movie. In the past few decades, American <laughs> institutions have struggled with the temptation of politics. Politics invariably tries to dominate another discipline to capture it and use it for politics own purposes while the second subject law religion literature economics science journalism or whatever struggles to maintain its independence but retaining a separate identity and integrity becomes increasingly difficult as more areas of our culture become politicized you add it is of note here that the seductress of the law is not liberalism or leftism or communism or nihilism or any of the other familiar specters haunting the right-wing imagination rather the temptation is politics as such. Can the law exist outside of politics, and can anything, for that matter? Um, well, let me try and stick to my area. I'm mean, not sure I can answer the anything um, question. Uh, <laughs> can, can the law exist outside of politics? My simple answer in the book is no. Um, and the, the, I want to make a second claim to it. So you could say, well, we can't escape politics when we engage in constitutional interpretation. We can't escape politics when we uh, engage in uh, drafting new provisions of the Constitution. And you could say, well, isn't that unfortunate? Uh, this, this is some, it's unavoidable. It's a terrible thing. But there it is. And part of what I'm trying to do in the book is actually, I think, vindicate um, both the d dignity, the necessity, and the rightness of political thinking uh, when it comes to uh, organizing our body politic. And maybe even go a little bit further that the idea of an apolitical, anti-political um, uh, constitutional discourse or justification strikes me as somewhat dystopian. Um, and profoundly, I think, dishonest and self-deceiving. And when we engage in that kind of self-deception, uh, what we miss is precisely the kinds of powers, um, the exclusions, the hobbling of democracy that are already present uh, in American law. So um, I agree with Bork uh, that, uh, indeed, the politics is circulating, saturating American law. Uh, but unlike Robert Bork, or I should say, unlike uh, President, uh, former President Barack Obama, um, the mere presence of politics does not strike me as the problem. 
I this is the part that really fascinated me, and it fascinated me fascinated me, Jack, because I didn't understand it, and I want to make this the thing that's most important about this show is for me to learn, so or our, our listeners to learn. It's actually all about me, Jack. Don't tell anybody. So uh, uh, you write about how traditional legal factors such as precedent, text, and intent have virtually no impact on adjudication. How do Precedent, text, and intent have no impact on adjudication. I thought those were the backbone of adjudication. Uh, um, maybe, maybe I wrote an unclear statement there. Um, that is the argument put forward by certain behavioral social scientists. Right, right. I'm sorry. I should um, point who, that out. Who say that uh, you know the, these things have uh, no uh, no meaning? They don't bind justices. Um, that really, what justices or the courts are doing are just going case by case, uh, ruling uh, whatever their particular preference is. And that's actually a view that I'm disputing um, in the book. That I do think precedent, text, uh, these things matter. And uh, let's just give you uh, an example. The um, going back to your uh, heritage report. Uh, quote, the fact that um, conservatives were willing to apply the Second Amendment um, to the states is itself, I think, a, um, a mark of the triumph of precedent, and that's the precedent of the doctrine of incorporation, which, as you noted earlier, the process by which the Bill of Rights um, become applicable to the states. I'll give you another example along similar lines. Uh, when we have a disagreement about the First Amendment, uh, something like Citizens United, for example, or um, the flag-burning case in Texas, a, a very famous one. When we have disagreements about uh, the question, does the First Amendment protect this particular um, action, speech, assembly, et cetera, et cetera. The disagreements that happen on the court are, does the First Amendment doctrine reach and apply to this case? We don't have debates anymore on the Supreme Court of, does the First Amendment apply to the states? Now, that was a really live uh, conversation, debate, disagreement in the early 20th century. You would have justices dissenting. Um, I've yet to see a case in the First Amendment that's come out in uh, recent decades in which you have uh, justices saying, oh, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Texas. So that's an example of precedent shaping the, the, the constitutional uh, question at hand, and, um, and that's political. And I, I think that's the point I really want to make here. And the political content of that doctrine is actually made visible by the quote you gave us from the Heritage Foundation that indeed nationalizing the Bill of Rights puts us in a different constitutional universe. And that different constitutional universe is, um, I think, better, and I think it's better for political reasons, not simply reasons of uh, technical interpretation or the work of um, apolitical umpires uh, you know, with their uh, 18th century dictionaries. Well, let's just continue that conversation about precedent sure. for a second, because you write in the wake of the Supreme Court's 1989 decision in Teague versus Lane, law professor Linda Meyer observed a troubling dimension of the Supreme Court's opinion. The court, in attempting to draw a distinction between new rules on the one hand and rules dictated by precedent on the other, sought to severely limit situations representing the latter so as to make it more difficult for prisoners to bring habeas cases to court. The holding right. in Teague advanced the political project of restricting the rights of prisoners, a central plank of post-Warren Court conservative jurisprudence, but it did more than that. Meyer notes that the court in Teague began wearing away the power of precedent itself, stripping all prior cases of all persuasive forces beyond their particular factual context limited to its facts. A case will guide future cases 
differences only in the extraordinary event that history repeats itself. The analogical links forged between past and present from one case to the next stand broken, narrowing precedent to the point of perfunctoriness would constitute, in Meyer's words, self-destructive legal analysis. What happens to the law? What happens to justice when precedent is no longer considered? When determining justice, what happens when the practice of law becomes, as Meyer says, self-destructive legal analysis? Um, well, I think what happens, uh, well, in that case, what happens is, the, uh, as I note, is the uh, terrible narrowing um, of the rights of prisoners, uh, which is another example of why a fantasy of a return to the rule of law um, is so problematic if that is the content, con- content um, of the law. In terms of the erosion, um, I came to uh, uh, Professor Myers writing on, on Teague after writing on Bush v. Gore, and what struck me is that uh, the logic in Bush v. Gore was the same kind of logic that was being noted here, the uh, habeas doctrine with prisoners. As the court came forward and said, well, we have this new equal protection doctrine. And again, just for your, your listeners, we're back in 2000. It's uh, Bush v. Gore. Uh, Florida Supreme Court's ordered a recount um, of the ballots, and the Supreme Court says we're going, this violates equal protection because we don't have uniform standards and counting. Uh, well, that's, that's normal. That's a new constitutional principle in which we think when we hear the announcement of a new constitutional principle, it's going to apply for, uh, for future um, events and cases. And uh, what the court did was try and narrow it really to that specific case. And this generated all kinds of uh, commentary and notice and protest in the legal community uh, when that decision came down. And what you have, I think, when that starts to become the norm is uh, the erosion of the possibility of constitutionalism. Uh, That is, the future itself is collapsing. And what we have is a kind of um, free-floating regime of fiat. Um, But it's it's trickier, and this is a point that I think uh, Professor Meyer helps us see, it's self-destructive. And by being self-destructive, it has the capacity still of having a certain kind of authority of law about it. That is, it's not a practice exterior to law, it's interior. And so it still, and this may be changing, but certainly in 2000, it still had the capacity to compel obedience. And if you go back and look at uh, Al Gore's concession speech, he says, I'm, I'm conceding this because we must, we must affirm the rule of law. Now, what happens when uh, you concede something in the name of the rule of law when what you're conceding to is the very thing that's undermining it? And that, I think, is the um, terrible dilemma we're in. And um, part of what I'm trying to do with this book is help us see it and think about how we might respond to it. You write the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments did not arrive in the South via free deliberation and the normal means of constitutional ratification. They are, after all, collectively referred to as the Civil War Amendments, although constitutional law scholar Bruce Ackerman has sought to rescue this history from the category of lawlessness. He, unlike many constitutional lawyers, has at least confronted it directly. Then you quote Ackerman writing, were it not for the purge of Southern senators and representatives, the Congress meeting in June of 1866 would never have mustered the two-thirds majorities required to propose the 14th Amendment. Does lawlessness then lead to better laws as the only way to make significant legal change in the U.S. during, during some sort of or stage or degree of lawlessness? Um, well, I would be very hesitant with the only in the, in the question. I think there are many ways to um, change both um, the laws and, 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 the, and the body politic. Um, I cite that example, you know, 
when these eruptions, these anti-constitutional events have erupted, Bush v. Gore, the pardon of Apayo, the refusal to grant Merrick Garland a hearing, uh, many on the on the liberal left, and you saw, I think you quoted it with the Ar- Arpaio um, uh, editorials, um, they say we have two problems here. One, we have the politicization of the law. And uh, what I've, uh, in our conversation earlier, I think I've tried to put on the table why that's a problem. The second uh, primary critique is what we have here is lawlessness. And um, this critique in charge of lawlessness, it's a lawless president doing this pardon, it's lawlessness in Guantanamo Bay, um, et cetera, et cetera, is I have two problems with the, the lawless critique here. The first is I don't think lawlessness quite captures it for precisely the reasons um, that we just discussed uh, with uh, Bush v. Gore, and that it's emanating from legal authorities. And so what we're in is in that paradox that Professor Meyer uh, guided us to in Teague versus Lane. So these events aren't themselves lawless. I think the other problem with the lawless critique is that it says that politics and resistance to these anti-constitutional eruptions themselves must be profoundly um, and studiously legal. And part of what I think that the tradition of American constitutional democracy shows is that um, resistance to unjust forms of power don't always take place within the law, and that these um, resistance exterior uh, to strict legality um, can indeed be the source of uh, new constitutional visions. I don't think they have to be the only mechanism, uh, but I think we miss something important um, if we erase those. You write, what makes contemporary anti-constitutionalism so perplexing is the open-ended articulation of legal transgression within the field of law itself. It rules most intensely in the name of that which it simultaneously dismembers. It cannot do without that which it so relentlessly undoes. Anti-constitutionalism rules without producing a new judicial norm or legal order, but instead generates a show and shadow of legality that becomes the claimed basis of authority. Law thus governs at the precise moment it withdraws. In this withdrawal, the temporal underpinnings of constitutional politics disappear. Futurity evaporates. Why does our future, our renewed or continued existence, evaporate when constitutional politics disappear? Um, well, in these um, in these instances that I'm I'm uh, uh, citing here, that uh, I think I think the very idea of the Constitution um, requires a certain kind of commitment to futurity. It's what it's what it's what the disagreement battles about. Just give you an example. Um, take Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, that case comes up, and uh, the battle is over the doctrine of what, how do we conceptualize constitutionally what equality means in the United States. Now, there's a particular case, Brown v. Board, a particular set of cases, um, but what's being decided is not just the school po- policy in, in Topeka, Kansas. What's being decided is a constitutional principle that will govern going forward. And that governing going forward, it seems to me, is um, a central element of what we mean by constitutionalism. Now, I think we often think we think is something. Uh, if we think what is constitutionalism, we might think of things like well, it's rights protected, uh, it might be popular sovereignty, separation of powers. Um, but I, what I want to try and bring forward in the book is that I think a commitment to futurity uh, and a certain kind of commitment to general applicability is itself at the heart of uh, constitutionalism. And that's what's under assault 
And that assault on uh, futurity and anti-constitutional politics is, I think, converging with and also emanating from a certain kind of um, apocalyptic sensibility in American political life. And it's, uh, I think out, it exceeds just uh, constitutional questions. You know, we have this very strange moment where we are receiving all kinds of warnings um, from scientists that our capacity uh, to have human life uh, in any kind of um, uh, decent sense going forward with climate change is in jeopardy and a kind of uh, bizarre um, disregard or unworry by many on the American right. And so it seems to me that the apocalyptic question is manifesting itself in anti-constitutional politics, uh, but also I think structuring politics uh, even more broadly in the United States, at least on the right. You write that uh, limiting habeas corpus appeals by prisoners can constitute a true political triumph of the Rehnquist court over the legacy of the Warren court. It is a victory for the police state buttressed by the law. Teague can be fully understood only as a part of the current court's relentless campaign against habeas corpus and the constitutional protections underlying it. Habeas corpus is a writ requiring a person under arrest to be brought before a judge or into court, especially to secure the person's release unless lawful grounds are shown for their detention just so everybody understands what happens when we lose that right. Um, well, what happens when we lose that right is it becomes uh, terribly, terribly difficult uh, for us to uh, challenge um, unjust um, convictions. And uh, this is part of what uh, the battle was over and, and the Teague case in which the court said we're not going to hear uh, challenges unless it fits perfectly within our precedent. That is, if you bring forth a challenge that is offering a novel interpretation of precedent, um, that's going to be out of bounds. We, we will not even hear it. And this is what the dissent was uh, noting and what Professor Myers and others were noting is that it then creates a situation uh, in which you have to come forward and say, my case is exactly like the previous case. Well, that 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 doesn't happen. We rarely have the exact precise replication of facts. What we have in constitutional law are the establishment of constitutional principles uh, which govern a variety of uh, facts uh, that fall within the orbit of the principle. So by the collapse of uh, futurity and the uh, principle uh, makes it terribly, terribly difficult uh, to challenge uh, unjust convictions in the United States. And is itself part, as I, I know, part of the expanding prison industrial complex. And uh, was, it really was a central part of the political project of uh, since 1972, 68-72, with uh, the rise of uh, Richard Nixon and uh, law and order conservatism, to roll back uh, our rights when it comes to the uh, prison industrial complex and to expand the prison industrial complex uh, as a governing mechanism in the society. I think uh, I may have asked maybe 20, 25 questions. I had 60 written down. So I just want everybody to know that we have just skimmed the surface of Jack's book. The book's called Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics in the American Right. Political theory and constitutional law scholar Jack Jackson has been our guest. We have one last question for you, Jack, and as we do with all of our guests, it's sure. the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response, and I think that's the area in which this will lie. You write, okay. as the presidential election of 2016 approached, and it appeared most likely that the Democratic nominee would win, key senators declared this newfound principle to be no principle at all and began laying the groundwork for blocking any nominee from any popularly elected Democrat. 
Democratic presidents. This is in the Garland case. In the yeah. place of constitutional principle now stood nothing more than the duration and endurance of willpower. And yet again, this willpower triumphed, at least in part, because a fear and loathing of politics saturated the response to the anti-constitutional gambit. What circumstances would have to exist for Republicans to ever allow Democrats to appoint Supreme Court justices again? After all, this strategy worked. Um, to, uh, what, what, uh, let's see. At this point, with the party and where it's at, I think the only thing that will permit uh, Democrats to get a Supreme Court justice on the court is um, either, one, the abolition of the filibuster in the Senate, uh, which I think is terribly necessary, or two, the um, destruction of the Republican Party into a really a small minority party. Um, those seem to me the only two routes going forward, uh, given the failure to confront uh, these anti-constitutional gambits. Again, they keep winning. So, thank you so much for being on our show, Jack. I really appreciate it. I just decided to hit my head on the microphone. All right. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I hope thank to have you, you on so the show much. again. Thank you so much. It was uh, great to talk to you. All right. Great to talk to you, too. Take care. Ay, 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 yeesh. I, this mic's just starting to drive me crazy. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week goes to the religious tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell by Kilter, Pete, and Adrienne. Thanks to Mark for your generous support. And thanks to Tynan, who tells us they would like the This Is Hell stainless steel coffee cup for showing their support. Tynan tells us they are a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell. So Tynan gets any or all of our gifts for uh, supporters for $5 less than non-subscribers. Again, subscribe to Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to everyone who supported this is hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air, support this is hell and get this is hell swag, go to this is hell.com and click on support. The UAW sold out its members decades ago. The union decided that what was best for them wasn't necessarily best for workers. In fact, they joined the sides of the bosses against the workers with devastating results for GM workers. The UN made concession after concession with GM, and what did they get? hundreds of thousands of jobs lost in the rapid deunionization of the automotive industry. We'll try to figure out exactly why this week's UAW strike against GM is happening when we speak with activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams, who wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three American Automakers. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and plenty have so far. We currently have a 4.9 rating out of a possible five stars because some freak thinks that we're actually getting paid by Vladimir Putin. And Oh, I so wish that was true. Oh, my God. It would be a sustainable flow of income. It would be great. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Radio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air. Homer gave us five stars recently and left this comment. This Is Hell is by far my favorite podcast. Chuck does great interviews and continues to have great guests. And Alex always provides awesome social media posts. Thanks for being there while we all make our way through this hell. Thanks, Homer. You can go to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do, 
leave a comment. I'll read yours on the air. Okie doke. Let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you infusing with CBD? What are you infusing with CBD? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page. All replies are going to be read on air right now. This week's winner gets a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can view right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Again, the question from hell is, what are you infusing with CBD? Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question because... Uh, what are you infusing with CBD? Scott M says the cure for poisonous vape cartridges. <laughs> Lisa B says all the Oreos I would inevitably ingest from taking CBD oil to begin with. Marco G says my cat. <laughs> Michael LP says my pre- my prescription strap on. <laughs> Evan D says my real weed. <laughs> Michael D says coffee grounds and turmeric. Ah, no wait, that's my enema concoction. Gorilla Gramophonics says my toothpaste. Wait, something's wrong. Uh, Garrett S. says, my soul. Uh, Miles M. says, crack cocaine. <laughs> Who's that? That was uh, Miles M. Uh, Richard M. says, my ounce of kind. What are you infusing with CBD? Jeremy T. says, nothing, because this post is clearly the work of the Atlantic Council. I'm on to you, Chuck Zuckerberg. <laughs> Gabriel C. says, my crippling anxiety. R- Ronaldo M., you want to guess what he said? Oh, I don't know. Pasta Fajul. Oh, okay. Uh, Adam A says... If I'd guessed that, it would have been racist. Uh, Adam A says, our brave new world hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> Zach A says, a salve for the Dem primary uh, for the Dem presidential candidates to soothe the burn. Jack B said, my growing cynicism and self of impending doom about the state of the world. <laughs> and Nathan R posted uh, a gif of a woman smiling and thinking about a butt plug. I mean, that counts as a response. <laughs> I guess. This is our fault for asking these questions. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, what are you infusing with CBD? Adam K says, my supply of snake oil. <laughs> Rowan W says, the central business district. <laughs> Court H says, episodes of Cumtown. What was Adam K's again? Adam K's was my supply of snake oil. Okay. Uh, yeah, Court H, episodes of Cumtown. <laughs> you listen to Cumtown, Chuck? <laughs> no. Uh, John M said, the dog's breakfast. I live in it, though. A rat's nest and every bone in my body. Aww. Aaron C. says, John Bolton's tears. Marshall W. says, crust punk butt crystals. Could be a new warm-up tongue twister for you. I love that band. Pete V. says, my prison wallet. (laughs) Nikki says, testicles. A lot of guys are remarkably stubborn about it. Maybe I should try somewhere else besides the L. What are you infusing with CBD? Joe S. says, my disaffected disposition of depression. Uh-oh, Mel's here. Yeah, that was Mel. Uh, we should infuse Mel with some CBD. Uh, Nick A says the alphabet. Jack W says THC. Wally R says oregano. What are you infusing with CBD? A couple more. Chris F says a cyanide capsule. That's very good. Who's that? That's Chris F. Uh, Mike A says moon pies. Dan T says suppository. We have a lot of butt stuff going on in this one. If I'm going to get effed by capitalism, I want it to at least deal with my anal retentiveness in such a way that it attenuates my anxiety. Wow. Bill H says alcohol to save time. Mike W. I get it. Says pork rhymes. Rhymes, not rhymes. Uh, <laughs> Pammy H says, what are you infusing, you ask? I'm infusing my old time me because my new me wouldn't appreciate this shirt the way the old me would. <laughs> Marty P says, hey, I answered this already. Infused wine for single moms. Seriously, we need it. Marty P won a couple of weeks ago. Never sent us his uh, mailing address. Or her. Or her, correct. Single, single moms can be male or female. Yeah, but it's a uh, Marty with a Y, and I always need the whatever. Their pictures will 
Okay. Let's not get in trouble. Whatever. Marty, I, Marty I'll get in touch. Please. Warren L. says, six-month-old deep fat uh, fryer oil and duck sauce. <laughs> Fabio L. says, I roll a one for my combat bonus defense and infuse the D&D group with failure. <laughs> a couple more. Uh, what are you infusing with CBD? Andrew T. says, the water supply, purity of essence, peace on earth. Yeah. Chandler H. says, my soon-to-be-owned This Is Hell t-shirt. I need all of that upper body relief. Uh, Tom D. says, Jepsons. <laughs> William H. says, Girl Scout cookies. Braden S. says, The Nuclear Code's football. Got to be calm when you're making big decisions. <laughs> uh, Thomas K. says, Low information voters. Wait, is there enough CBD on Earth? Uh, Curtis F. says, The CPB. Hopefully it will make them too sleepy to carry out their fascistic actions. Uh. Jim P. says, My lousy job. Big E.N. <laughs> says, Donuts at the coffee shop where the cops hang out. Crime has gone down this week. Ha uh, ha. Devil horn sign emoji. Beer emoji. couple more. Jessica B. says, The future. <laughs> Renny H says oxycodone. What are you infusing with CBD? Ladio says Madge tells me I'm soaking in it. I'm not going to look up what any of that means. Uh, our own Jeffy says David Brooks as we prepare him for hibernation during his interplanetary journey to search for moderate conservatives beneath the ocean on Jupiter's moon Europa. And finally, David G says your mom. <laughs> My response to this week's question from hell: What are you infusing with CBD? It's a response some other people had, which is weed. Because to be honest, I'd rather be high than not so let's see i liked uh, marco g saying my cat garrett s his soul miles m crack adam k snake oil that's good chris f cyanide capsules that's just kind of weird and bizarre uh wally r saying oregano and jessica b saying the future those are really really great responses and don't have much to do with butt plugs so i really enjoy all of these uh we're gonna go with chris f and cyanide capsules chris you are the winner of a this is hell t-shirt for having the best response to this week's question from hell thanks everyone for coming out to our weekly meet and greet which is more a drink and think this is hell office hours at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon drop by drink hang out watch me drink get some free this is hell subvertising stickers and free show related books just for asking thanks so week goes out to Lori, tom alex jordan elliot Leo, I think I said Leo already, uh, Shelly, Andrew, Ronaldo, Wally, and, and a lot more of you. But I was suffering from what kept me from doing last week's show still, so I forgot you were there. My apologies. You can find out what was affecting me and why I missed last week's show by listening to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Join us Wednesday evenings at Carrie's Lounge from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. for This Is Hell Office Hours. Drop by, have a drink, get a free show-related book and some This Is Hell subvertising stickers. Hell, check out our new uh, nearly completed studios and get some This Is Hell swag as we have it available. Actually, next week's office hours start at 8 o'clock. They're going to be going from like 8 to 10 instead of 6 to 9. So 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. because we're going to be recording a Patreon podcast. Or we're going to be re- recording the show here at 7 o'clock on Wednesday. So every Wednesday at Curry's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. This is how office hours is what we call our meet and greet here at This Is Hell. And it's really more a drink and think. Come on by, meet other listeners. Meet Mel, the feral cat. There is a vigil against violence happening Sunday, October 6th, at the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church at 600 West Fullerton from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. here in Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot will be a special guest at this memorial for those killed by gun violence here in town. 
The goal is to have a deeper awareness of the root causes of violence, to commit to taking action, and to experience what it's like when all the city's wonderful diversity comes together to create healing. This event is free and open to the public, but they are asking that you pre-register, as there is limited space, by going to the church's website, LPP Church for Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church, lppchurch.org. That's Sunday, October 6th at the Lincoln Park Presbyterian Church at 600 West Fullerton from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, how the UAW selling out its workers has led to the UAW strike against GM. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders if it's worth having heroes. We'll also tell you what we've been doing on our weekly Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. And during the next break, I'll share with you what happened to me this week when I went online searching for fun. And did I find fun? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. The UAW strike. Hey, uh, sorry, we just lost. I'm giving you one more chance. Sorry. All righty, that's just fine, Alex. You are listening to This Is Hell on thisishell.com, streaming live right now on thisishell.com. I hope that everybody's enjoying a show that is not being preempted by football. We finally, for the first time in This Is Hell history, we have circumvented being preempted by football. So, and look at that. And Alex is so excited about it, he just gave me a touchdown signal. Pretty exciting. The UAW strike of GM has been a long time coming, and it should come as no surprise to anyone who has been paying attention to how the union sold out their members. Here to help us understand why the GM strike is happening and to offer a much-needed historical context of what's been happening with the UAW over the last few decades, activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three Automakers. Welcome to This Is Hell, Thomas. I uh, look like it just dropped again. Sorry. Jeez. Let me figure this out with him. Follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Email us at any time at chuck at this is hell dot com. Uh, what else can I tell you? Oh, yeah. Okay. So next week, here's the deal. On Monday, we are going to be doing a live stream at 10 a.m. Chicago time for one hour. Then on Wednesday, we are going to be doing one hour podcasts, one at 10 a.m. again, Chicago time on Wednesday, and then another at 7 p.m. on Wednesday. So we're going to make three hours of shows for next week. Uh, We are then going to broadcast one of those hours on WNUR, but the other two are, you know, going to be online only. So, uh, join, so listen to us here on Patreon or on thisishell.com. It's not going to be only on Patreon. We'll still have a Patreon podcast for the Patreon people as well. But uh, if you want to hear the show live, go to thisishell.com next Monday and Wednesday. And then uh, we will be playing the show live on Saturday morning, playing one hour of the show live on Saturday morning. And then we are hopefully going to be transitioning to a process where we'll be giving you hell throughout the week and then putting that together as one show on the weekends. Our guest is activist and retired auto worker Thomas Adams, who wrote the monthly review article, A Tale of Corruption by the United Auto Workers and the Big Three 
American automakers. Welcome to This Is Hell, Thomas. Calls from private numbers. Hmm. To unblock your caller ID, hang up and then wow, his, dial star 82. His voice Followed is really high. Oh, well, let me see what's his going on. His voice is really, really high. Are we going to have to end the show early this week? No, 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 no. Jeff? We'll get it figured out. All right. All right. If you insist. All right. So let me tell you what I found out about fun this week. Because of what I was ailing from last week, I decided to see what the old internet had to offer when asked, what can I do that's fun right now? The question led the search engine to an article at wisebread.com headlined 47 cheap fun things to do this weekend, despite me not asking for cheap or weekend fun. But here are the article's suggestions, and the last one I found very intriguing. The list starts with go to the park. You can take your family or go with a friend, which makes sense. And me and my girlie actually did go to the park outside our back door and enjoyed a very pleasant walk last week. Wisebread.com also suggests watch the sunset, and we did that too, and it was very calming. Uh, The article also offers as ways to have cheap weekend fun, pack a picnic lunch, play board games, which I'm actually doing with friends tonight play card games do a road rally with friends yeah i'm not going to do that with climate change and all go on a digital scavenger hunt which doesn't sound cheap or fun but that's when the cheap fun gets interesting as the story states that to have cheap fun throw a b-y-o-e which sounds like a lot of fun and no i don't know or i don't i don't think they uh, it's just weird they they say what it is here's b-y-o-e it's bring your own encryption where cloud service customers use their own encryption to the cloud i'm pretty sure this one sneaked past the editors because the other meaning given to the acronym byoe is bring your own ecstasy so as a public service announcement from your good friends at this is hell with a hat tip to wisebread.com if you are looking for cheap fun this weekend invite friends over and tell them to bring their own damn ecstasy on the line with us right now is activist and right retired auto worker thomas adams who wrote the monthly review article a tale of corruption by the united united auto workers and the big three american automakers welcome to this is hell thomas Thomas, can you hear me? Thomas? Hello, Thomas. All right, I'll keep working on this. Holy criminies, dude. All right. We'll figure it out. I'll get it figured out. All right. Now I just have to kill time until we get him on the air. It's pretty easy. Uh, So did everybody hear about how uh, Donald Trump pulled his own Watergate? I love when politicians do corrupt things that are unnecessary to do. Richard Nixon was going to win in 1976. There was no question about it. Or 1972, there was no question about it. He was definitely going to win. He didn't need to break into Democratic National Headquarters and steal secrets or whatever of how George McGovern was going to win. That's not, that was never going to happen. Everybody knew it was never going to happen. And then he goes ahead with Watergate anyway. And for a totally unnecessary crime, he ends up losing his presidency. And now here we are with President Trump and his own Watergate. Headline in the New York Times today, President asked Ukraine's leader for Biden inquiry. Apparently, the story is something like there was somebody who was negotiating for the president with the new Ukraine president, who's a former stand-up comedian and just won a very surprise election. 
So uh, apparently somebody from the U.S. government, a lot of people are saying it's Rudy Giuliani because he said on CNN that he was involved in these negotiations. Uh, apparently the idea was the, the, the Trump administration would give $250 million in aid, as it was reported, uh, to the Ukrainian government if they dug up dirt on Joe Biden's son. On Joe Biden's son. Joe Biden's, I seriously doubt he's going to get one delegate in these primaries. Seriously doubt it. Every one of his campaigns completely fails. He doesn't even want to be president. He can't even tell you why he wants to be president. The only reason he wants to be president is so Donald Trump isn't president. And that's just not enough of a reason to be president. It's a very negative campaign. I don't want that thing. You got to have a positive campaign, not a negative thing. So President Trump apparently sent dele- or sent his uh, negotiators over there to make these talks with the Ukrainians to give them $250 million if they find dirt on Joe Biden's kid. Complete waste of time, completely unnecessary, and completely illegal. It's just amazing. I love the fact that, yes, yet again, an idiot, a megalomaniacal idiot, just like Bill Clinton was too, lying about having sex with Monica Lewinsky. There's no reason to do that. That's a megalomaniacal idiot move to do. And that's why he was impeached on one of, and it, uh, on one of the counts. So uh, always, you can always count on the fact that if, if you are going to run for president, if you want to be president, if you are president, you're probably a megalomaniac and you'll do something really stupid, like lie about having sex with a woman to a grand jury or breaking into Democratic National Headquarters when there are when you're a million points ahead in the polls and there's no way you're going to lose the election or trying to bribe the Ukrainian government to give you dirt on a uh, opponent's kid when that opponent is not going to be your challenger in next November's election. So just love it every time. Love when politicians just shoot themselves in the foot because their ego is so huge. <sighs> They don't know what to do with themselves. All right. Can I give you an update here? Yeah. Okay. The problem is, uh, for some reason, uh, Tom's phone will not accept calls from our Skype computer, which is the only way we can call people right now. Um, so I'm trying to figure out if there's a, something I can do, if there's a way I can pay uh, Skype to sort of register our number. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to go, Jeff said he could go early. Let's just go with Jeff early. Reschedule. and I'll reschedule with Tom. And we'll t- reschedule with Tom. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Uh, let me know when you want, Jeffy. Uh Let me just do this one read, and then we'll get to him. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. In a moment during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders if it's worth having heroes, and I don't think it is. Speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly put people before profits on Patreon this week... I explained to subscribers exactly why I was physically and emotionally unable to do last week's show, how I self-diagnosed and then sought out a cure online. And I learned to cure what ails me. All I have to do is end capitalism. We also shared one of my very favorite interviews we've ever done on This Is Hell, and that's our 2013 talk with anthropologist Robin Nagel, author of Picking Up on the Streets and Behind the Trucks with Sanitation Workers of New York City. But you can only find out why I couldn't do last week's show and learn what it's like to be a garbage truck driver by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com 
slash this is hell special thanks this week goes to those who are just joining us on patreon joe sabrina and neil thanks for joining us on patreon this week if you want to support truly independent media and keep us completely independent we take no grants we take no advertising money we are not beholden to anyone which is more than can be said for a lot of what you think our alternative media outlets but are not support this is hell by becoming a this is hell subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell and every week get exclusive content only for subscribers that includes access to live streaming content you cannot get otherwise that's this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell in fact uh, let's say anything else i want to mention here all right Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin wonders if it's worth having heroes. We also want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, I know you have half a handle on. What? The Dust Up. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Without naming names, I recently got in a minor Twitter dust up with a musician, actor, artist I admire. He's multi-talented and prolific. He's one of the two male stars of the movie Stranger Than Paradise, and he likes fishing. That's all I'll say. But we got in a dust up or whatever, I got his dust up or his dander up. And I gave him the last word because it was his art and his tweet we were talking about. He took offense to what I felt was a compliment. He posted a painting of his, and I loved it. I love all his paintings. If I were an art collector, I'd collect his paintings. And those are a few other people you probably haven't heard of. Some of them illustrators and commercial artists. Not that the artist in question is either one of those. He's not. The long and the short of it is... I said a particular piece reminded me of Paul Clay's work. The artist became patronizing and hostile. I responded apologetically, told him briefly and vaguely what I thought were the conceptual commonalities, endured his brief lecture-like interrogation. It's weird to tell an artist that a work he posts looks like that of an art another artist, isn't it? Responded, reminds me of, reminds me of, not looks like. And told him we'd had Richard Seymour on our show who wrote a book about social media titled The Twittering Machine after the clay painting and that maybe I had clay on the brain for that reason. I've seen that painting in person, incidentally, years ago at a clay retrospective in New York accompanied by my friend, the playwright and performer David Isaacson. Yes, I suppose it's weird to tell an artist that a work he posts looks like that of another artist, although Clay is a far better artist, and that was one reason it could have been construed as a compliment. There were, as I say, vague similarities, conceptually. I've liked Clay since I was a kid, says the dude, so I am sure he sneaks into my work, but I don't think the stuff looks like his stuff. 
No, it doesn't look like his stuff. As I'd already said, I didn't say it did. It reminds me of it. I have an associative consciousness. Things remind me of other things that superficially they may have nothing in common with. Comedian Bill Burr reminds me of a composer friend of mine, although no one understands what I think that resemblance might be. That I could understand causing some offense, although the composer friend I'm talking about does a lot of pulling of his friend's legs, so I think he'd roll with it or pretend to be offended until he'd felt he'd tortured me enough. See, that's one option. Or you could say, hmm, yeah, I don't get it. Or can you explain that to me? Or you might just humbly say, wow, I don't see it, but I admire Clay, so I'm going to take that as a compliment rather than an accusation of plagiarism or a matter of ruseness. I mean, if my dude were at all on par with Clay, I could see taking offense, but jeez. I could have explained that his backgrounds remind me of Clay's. Both are improvisational, alive in the materials both use, though Clay controls his more with geometry. And then there are objects or creatures in the foreground, often arrayed somewhat ritualistically or as if they made up a kind of language. But this artist's responses were so snippy, I didn't feel I could go into that stuff without trying his patience. Anyway, Clay's better. Way better. Have you ever seen the work of a young artist, Esme Shapiro? who does incredible paintings and drawings, as well as children's book illustrations. Certain of her work reminds me of the work of Edward Hicks, the painter who created the many iterations of an image called The Peaceable Kingdom. But her work doesn't look anything like that. It couldn't look more different unless it were just a found urinal. It reminds me of Hicks, okay? Reminds me of. The way the creatures emerge from the world of the painting. Somehow, Esme Shapiro's creatures emerge from and reside in the world of her paintings in a way analogous to the way the creatures in the Peaceable Kingdom emerge from and reside in the world of Hicks' paintings. If you see them, you might detect what I mean. The peace of the creatures. They arose in peace. They abide in peace. They ar- abide in peace. And it's a fecund, verdant peace. I understand. Artists are sensitive, and this guy has even been known to be a little paranoid. He's got all kinds of hostilities, sometimes for reasons it's not clear are valid. It's an honor to be crapped on him, to be crapped on by him. It's an honor to be crapped on by him, actually. And it's almost like having him do your portrait in one of his favorite media. I mean... I should talk, right? I have my crotchets and hobby horses and pet peeves, but the only other writer I'm ever compared to is Andy Rooney, and the generation who remembers that old weirdo is rapidly going extinct. I've never taken offense, taken any offense to that comparison, not even secretly, and I've been told I should. The fact is, some artists are hard to love in person. They're the opposite of, say, Fascists, who are easy to despise from a distance, but are often said to be charming people one-on-one. Hitler was the life of the party. Reagan was a delightful raconteur. I hear Richard Spencer is very generous when explaining the nature and significance of Pepe the Frog. There's a saying, never meet your heroes. Or is it never tweet your heroes? Or never reheat your gyros? Probably best never to have gyros or heroes. But if that can't be avoided, try not to confront your heroes in the Twittering machine. Then again, what's really the harm? A little annoyance never hurt anyone. Devin Nunez's cow annoys Devin, and that's been a net plus as far as I can judge it. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. 
How are you, sir? Well, I might make it. <laughs> That's a good thing to hear. <laughs> hey, uh, I saw a movie, and uh, I don't know if you have or know anything about it. Uh, Peter Jackson has a new documentary out. It's on HBO. It's called We Will Not Grow Old. It's where he took World War One footage and then colorized it and uh, read their lips and put words to silent movie film footage from uh, World War One And uh, it, it, the... It, it was interesting in that Zelig aspect of it, you know, like bringing yeah, yeah. old footage back to life. That was interesting. But, uh, it, like, it just didn't really... I mean, yeah, you saw some horrors of war, but every guy was talking about how much it turned him into a man and how much they liked it, and then they would always have the qualifier, well, I lived. jeez. Oh, you know? <laughs> Very bizarre. Well, I have heard the movie was good. I uh, people have said, I haven't seen it. Where'd you see it? HBO. And uh, then somebody uh, told me that I should that uh, my girlie should see uh, Dead Alive, which is his zombie movie. I never heard that term before. A zombie movie that's a comedy zombie movie. And they mm. said that it is the best zombie movie ever. Have you ever seen Dead Alive? I have not, but I liked Zombieland. Yeah. I like Zombieland, too, though this uh, sequel of it looks like a piece of crap. Yeah. But you know what was the, the original zombie movie was uh, Dawn of the Dead. Oh, yeah. You're right. Cause that... It was hilarious. Never stopped laughing for a moment. <laughs> All People's right. People's heads splashing open. I know. That's what's really great. It's hilarious stuff. It's really great stuff. And I remember watching, uh, I remember my uh, great niece when she was like two years old, uh, my uh, niece was watching um, Walking Dead with her. And this yeah. two-year-old just started laughing every time a zombie was killed. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it is a satire. You know, it's, it, it's, it's inevitably a satire of the mindlessness of Americans' consumerism. That's what Dawn of the Dead is, because it all takes place in a mall, and it's all these slobbering zombies trying to get into the mall. Uh, you got to love that metaphor. All right, Jeffy. Yeah. Love you. Oh, I love you. Stay gorgeous. You stay beautiful, too. <laughs> Live from, I don't know, oh, our new studios here above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. This is hell. The best way for you to get the good word out about the evil content of This is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This is Hell is a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly shared the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more share it, but many choose to do so anonymously and considering Facebook Facebook's sharing of data. It's probably a good idea. Thanks this week goes out to Mary, Robert, Jesse, Julie, Gorilla Gramophonics, Astrid, all the people who shared our interview with Kier Milburn, author of Generation Left, including Jake, Ross, Jeff with one F, and Kier's publisher, Palati. Thanks for sharing. Also goes out to everyone who shared our interview with Alex Adams on the flawed reasoning behind the ticking time bomb scenario, including Rob, Victoria, Todd with one D, Christopher, and Fabio. Finally, thanks to Clive, Pete, Jan, Jeffrey, and Jesse for sharing. Thanks to everyone for sharing the entire show, my monologue, any of our interviews, or Jeff's moment of truth, no matter how you share. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell has been Alex Jerry. All right, Alex, so what's going on? Who are our guests for our shows next week? We're going to be broadcasting or streaming live one show at 10 a.m. on Monday. Who's our guest that day? 
has made Kevin Cashman from CEPR, who has a Jacobin piece called U.S. Sanctions Are Designed to Kill. And then on Wednesday morning at 10 a.m., we are going to be doing another 10 a.m. Chicago time, another one-hour live podcast. Do we have anybody booked for that yet? Yeah, Jody Dean, my fave, to talk about her book, Comrade, an essay on political belonging. Oh, and she's in the 10 a.m. She's not in the 7 p.m. That's correct. Okay, so who's the 7 p.m.? Uh, 99% short is going to be Amelia Moore to talk about her book, Destination Anthropocene, Tourism and Science in the Bahamas. Destination Anthropocene is the best title I have heard for, of a book in a long time. You got me with your title. I really appreciate it. And uh, in the weeks coming forward, everyone, we're still trying to work out our uh, our schedule for weekdays, uh, with, what with uh, child care situations and stuff like that. But uh, we will have that ironed out, I think, hopefully in the next few weeks. And we'll let everyone know ahead of time when we're going to be broadcasting until we get something super, super solid. And in case you're wondering, when Alex talks about child care concerns, he's not saying that I run a daycare center or anything. This is all on Alex. It has nothing to do with me. All right. I want to thank uh, Alex for producing this week's show. Thanks to Ronaldo for the moment of truth. Thanks to, or for the rotten history. Thanks to Jeff for the moment of truth. Also, thanks to our guest political theory and constitutional law scholar, Jack Jackson, author of Law Without Future, Anti-Constitutional Politics and the American Right. Thanks to Ann Nassauer, sociologist Ann Nassauer, for her book, Situational Breakdown, about the real reasons that protests turn violent. Thanks to award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who posted the Intercept story, Waste Only, How the Plastics Industry is Fighting to Keep Polluting the World. And this week's Hangover Cure is probiotics. This is not the media. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Matt Damon. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.